Human culture thrives when discussions about what is true, what is just, and what is beautiful is remembered as an ongoing, never-ending, never-complete conversation. To quote Milton, by the known rules of ancient liberty, welcome to Risky Conversations. I am your co-host, Ace Deliri. Join us as we engage in this ancient tradition of discussions around interesting topics with utterly fascinating people. Welcome to Risky Conversations. Joining us today is Luca Delena uh, and my co-host, Ember Sadat. Luca, please tell our guests uh, about yourself and we'll dive right into some Risky Conversations. Hi, thank you. Uh, so I'm based in uh, Turin in Italy. Uh, I work both uh, as a teacher. I run some courses myself on uh, management and uh, risk management. And uh, sometimes I do them also for universities as an external teacher. And then I'm, I also um, write books. And uh, sometimes I work with some companies on topics like uh, management and risk management. Perfect. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I wanted to get right, right off the bat. I wanted to get started with, um, I just, I've, I'm actually subscribed to your uh, weekly newsletters as well. So I, th I thoroughly enjoy uh, the, the snippets that you collect and share with the rest of us. Uh, so let's, uh, let's get started with the first question. Uh, today, I really wanted to discuss something uh, about the consequences of orders, first order, second order, third order, and fourth order. And before we go into some examples of that, would you mind for our audience just giving them an, an understanding of what do we mean when we discuss first order effects, second order effects, and so on? Yeah, so for me, first order are the consequences of an action, the direct consequences. But then what happens in the real world is that the environment will adapt to my action. And that is usually the second order consequences. Okay. So uh, this happens because uh, usually the, the, because the environment is complex, is made of multiple parts, like, like a population of uh, humans, uh, just different entities and when i'm doing something then they react the environment reacts uh, to try to counterbalance this change right. um, give you an example if a country decides to raise its taxes the first order consequence is that probably during the first year they will get a bit more taxes but then people will adapt they will do less of the activities that then become taxable. Maybe some of the richest people will move away. Some of companies will uh, relocate to uh, another country. And so what we see is, is that usually over the long term, the percentage of the GDP that a country collects in taxes tends to stay constant. So this would be an example. Uh, another example more in personal life is that uh, if I decide uh, to... Mm, for example, to go, to go uh, mm, if I decided to, to take an action like uh, eat something that I shouldn't be eating, or for example, drink a glass of wine or smoke a cigarette, the first order reaction of, the of smoking a cigarette is just uh, the effects of the nicotine the first time and yeah, that's pretty much it. But the second other effect is that my body adapts to it. And so it makes me more likely to, to smoke a second time. Uh, it makes me more tolerant to the effects of the cigarette, to the, to, to the good sides and 
and keep and starts getting me addicted. So one thing that I think is very important is that when we take decisions, we should think a bit less about how they influence the world and a bit more how they influence ourselves or how they create reactions into the world. Absolutely. No, I was just uh, going to tie that into the example you sent out in the email. Uh, for uh, for your, you know, th these kind of concepts, uh, they're not easily grasped at first, uh, first go. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to give you multiple examples to sort of see how this works out. So one of the examples that just came in your email as I was reading it is uh, the first order consequence of me telling a lie uh, is that it uh, sets me up for uh, uh, the consequences that I become insecure because I told a lie about something. Yeah, so what happens is that the, the reason why people usually tell the first lie is because they are insecure. Right. But then, then they become insecure because they lied. Exactly. Because they lie, they become more insecure. So what happens is yeah. that people find it very difficult to tell the truth. But what happens is that usually the moment they tell the truth, and maybe after like the first five, ten minutes reactions, what happens is that they, they grow up more confident and they are less likely to tell a to tell uh, a lie again in the future. Yeah. Right, right. And when the, the third consequence of that is, like, as you said, it's the uh, adaptive nature of the environment is that when you meet a person who's insecure um, because they haven't told the truth about where they are and how they got there, what ends up happening is you can almost sense it. And as a consequence, you stop trusting them with important tasks and important duties. So you may not give them that contract. You may not uh, you know, hire them for that job because now, the third order effect starts to kick in. So it's, it's, it's you told a lie to yourself. Now you're insecure about your lie, but other people can sense it and they don't want to do business with you. It sort of cascades in that particular direction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, so yeah, there's there's one more thing. I I I call this uh, phenomenon about like in, about individuals. I I call it uh, internal karma. Right. Uh, yeah, because the idea is like, uh, you know, there are certain philosophies that propose the idea of karma sometimes as a mystical force. Uh, right. but, but I'm less interested about the idea from the external world. Like usually when people talk about karma, the idea is something like, uh, uh, for example, I'm rude with someone uh, on the street. And then this, the evening I discovered that this guy works uh, as a waiter in the restaurant and he refused me to get in. Right, but, right, right, right. That's 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 not really for me. I'm much more interested about the internal consequences. So, like the idea of like because I take an action, this action will change my behaviors, in good or in bad, and so I'm basically setting myself up for some reactions inside me, for how I will react to to events in the future. Yeah, I think it's quite an important concept. I agree with you because because what's interesting about that is like if we talk about you know your other areas of interest include you know um, the idea of localism and, and politics and management inside companies and, and the fractal nature of all that. What's fascinating about that particular uh, idea that you just proposed is that even at a company, it all starts with the individuals who are collectively sitting there, right? So if one person is lying and their insecurity starts to wrap up around them, then they can no longer have an honest and truthful relationship with their coworker or their, their subordinate or their, their, their manager, and their manager could sense that. And then everybody gets entangled into these games where uh, insecurities upon insecurities just start to pile up. And the more there's insecurities and more lies that are being layered on, the more uh, uh, 
contact with reality, everybody starts to lose and the feedback loops start to impact it. And so the environment turns into a situation where um, uh, the most recent example I could think of is, you know, when, when the iPhone was launched, the guys at BlackBerry looked at it and instead of facing the consequence of, hey, that's a real competitor, their first reaction was, there's no way that thing is real, right? Or, our product is better, our this is that. And that sort of conversation starts to create a snowball effect. And because of this, uh, the, the certitude of which they, they make these statements, the yeah. people around them are like, well, listen, I need to protect my job. I can't disagree with uh, the CEO and I can't disagree with the manager. And so they go along with it, even though they know that this may not turn out to be as, 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 as well hoped as, as uh, the, the leaders are proposing. And within a short span, maybe about five, six years, the company basically ceases to exist. A more drastic example of that would be the Theranos company that does the blood testing, which was entirely built upon on these concepts of lies that created multiple layers of interaction between the person who started it, all the employees who were working it, you know, the, the government who was supposed to regulate this, uh, the, the, the external third party companies that were supposed to purchase this service, all the investors who put money into this, you know, and all the uh, media companies that were covering this, this particular uh, startup as the next great thing. Yet, as we saw, uh, the fundamental aspect of it was that because it was constructed upon a lie, it couldn't sustain itself. Right? Reality always wins. So if you create exactly. this environment and you have to maintain, and that's why I guess, I guess that's where that saying goes that uh, you know, to be a liar, you need a really good memory because you have to keep track of all the lies you've told. And after a while, the best thing, you, know, you, you start to notice this is that um, uh, even in political environments, the more tyrannical a, a government is, the more they're interested in squashing conversation because they don't know where the lie is going to leak from, right? Exactly. So, so, the, so you know, let's let's take some of that those ideas, that some of the meat that you've actually laid down here, and let's just start to explore this idea of fractalism and how antifragility ties into these uh, into these ideas. Yeah. Uh, before that, I just wanted to um, to talk about this part about companies and saying lies and the disconnect between the management. I like very much, very much uh, Ben Horowitz has this term which is called management debt. The idea that every time that a manager or someone anyway chooses the easy way over the hard way, basically they're incurring a debt. Right. Which means that it has to be paid. And if it doesn't get paid by doing much more than what was collected in the short term to make things okay in the long term, then what happens is that basically you de there is a default and basically the consequences start hitting very hard. Mm. So that's and interesting. Like this idea of debt, like every time that we take the easy choice in our life, we're basically taking a loan from the environment and mm -hmm. that's a loan then we have to pay back. Like every time that I decide, that, that I decide to, to, for example, to eat something I shouldn't be eaten, then I need to pay back this loan by maybe uh, eating more healthily for the rest of the week or going more to the gym or these kind of things. Otherwise, I have an outstanding debt that the environment will eventually collect. That's, you know, it's fascinating how the idea uh, is, is essentially almost exactly the same no matter which field you, 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 you measure it in. So, for example, when it comes to how well you eat, how healthy you are, or how many lies you're building your, 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 your relationships with. Um, what's interesting about all that is how initially when you tell that first lie, you may have uh, a certain amount of time 
uh, where you can, okay, I can correct for the slide. Like, you know, I said, I'm going to, you know, uh, I ate something really bad today, but I'm just going to fast tomorrow. I'm going to go to the gym. So you can kind of pay it off before the, the bill comes due without any compound interest. But if you tell one lie and then to sustain that lie because you didn't put any effort and you told a second lie, eventually when that first lie, the bill comes in, it starts to unravel the rest of the, uh, the, the, the entire uh, edifice that you've constructed here, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, yeah, and what happens is that, like, like, there are two things on this. So the first thing is that the problem is that the action of taking the debt usually also mm -hmm. makes makes you more less likely to pay the debt. Right. Uh, and the second thing is that, like in real life, there is a big difference between taking debt to buy a productive asset, right? Or taking a debt to buy some liabilities like far or something like this. And this again is a concept that moves very much into the real life. Like what is the reason why you took, why you took the debt? Did you take the debt to invest in something that brings you more long-term results? Or did you invest it just for like uh, pleasure or, or to just to take the easy way? Yeah. Right, no, no, you're right about that because what's interesting on that particular front is um, we can actually tie two different concepts here. The, the concept of telling a lie versus the concept of being lazy. Uh, as far as I can tell, laziness is lying in action, right? Because it's like, okay, there's two paths to take. There's the easy way and there's the right way. And if you take the easy way, you're essentially lying because you're not willing to put the effort required to pay the cost of whatever that is you're trying to accomplish. And as a consequence, you're lying to yourself through your words and through your actions. So it's actually like a, a, a double whammy. And when that bill comes to, to be uh, served and to be paid, it's actually quite painful. I've, 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 I've witnessed this uh, on numerous occasions where uh, I've noticed that people who tend to lie also tend to be a little bit more lazy. And laziness has to be defined in a proper way, in the sense that you could be lazy because you find the shortcut of what's the simplest way to do something. That's one way. Or you could be lazy where you just don't put any effort in and you find the cheapest solution to that particular problem without any uh, concerted effort on your part. And I think that's a distinction most people uh, is lost on them because in the programming world where I come from, laziness is a good thing. And usually what that means is like, hey, um, there's this complicated way to do it. What's the simplest way you can do it because you don't want to do all this complexity? And that's a, a, that's a form of laziness that we always appreciate because it's like, okay, if it's simple, I can kind of understand it. But then there's the other lazy route, which is like, well, I don't want to go to the gym but I'll buy these diet pills on TV and sit on the couch and I'll, I'll, I'll just eat the pills and then I should be good. The, the, the consequences of first order and second order in that particular sequence tends to come back to bite you in the butt too. Correct. And then also there is one more thing because if, like on a more global, like, um, global point of view, like one cannot always take all the hard choices like we have limited energy. Uh, so it would be normal like that that in our day-to-day -day life, we take some hard choices and some easy choices. I think that one important thing is like, uh, like making the example of going to the gym. Like the point is not going to the gym every single waking hour. The point is like not making too much time pass between uh, two gym sessions. The problem is not like the presence of comfort, it's the absence of discomfort. So it's not about like never taking the lazy choice. It's about mm -hmm. ensuring that, yeah, there are some lazy choices, but there are also some choices which are not lazy. Oh, of course. And that kind of ties into the other idea that you, you were mentioning, uh, which was the fence paradox, right? 
So if you, do you want to start to give us, our, our, our listeners, an idea of what the fence paradox is and how this, these two concepts kind of tie together? Yeah, so the fence paradox is a concept that was developed by uh, the Italian researcher uh, Pasquale Cirillo. And basically, it's the idea that human beings, they tend to keep the same level of perceived risks with their actions, uh, which is, which is, which is a, f- a phenomenon that is called the risk homeostasis. So the idea basically is that, let's say that I decide that uh, the right amount of risk to drive a car on a given road is 70 kilometers per hour. Right. If then I change the car and I get a newer car, which mm-hmm. is safer. What happens is not that I keep driving at 70 kilometers per hour and I'm more safe, but what happens instead is that I start driving at 90 kilometers per hour and I keep the same level of um, safety, perceived safety. Right, now, right. The problem is that incidents have nonlinear impact, which means that an incident at 70 kilometers per hour is many times worse than an incident at 50 kilometers per hour. Yes. So I make the example of the ABS, the anti-braking system. Yep. An anti-braking system is a device that allows you to brake safely on slippery roads. So what happens is that usually people, when they begin using an ABS, they discover that they can brake much more easily. And so what happens is that they start driving faster. Right. The problem is that because they drive faster, sometimes they slip sideways. And slipping sideways, it's something that the ABS does not protect you from. It only protects you if you, if you slide in the directions where, you, where you're driving. And so they get into an incident. But the incident at 70 kilometers per hour is much worse than the incident when, if they were going at 50 kilometers per hour. So what we see is that while the, the introduction of the ABS in the, since the 70s has reduced the number of accidents mm-hmm. per mile driven, it, it actually increased the number of road fatalities. Yes, yes. So we have that... many, much less incidents. Because of that, people think that it's safer to drive. Yes. So they accelerate. And so there are more incidents in which the, people, the person actually ends up dying. Yeah, no, and, and this is perfectly solidified by another example in the same vein is that people who have a credit card debt at a certain income level, when they increase their income, instead of paying down their debt, they can survive at the same level of discomfort with their debt by just increasing it. They go, oh, I was paying this much and I'm good. Now that I make more, I can just get into a bigger pile of debt. And it feels exactly the same to me emotionally in the sense of how much I'm paying per month, but I could take a bigger amount of, of debt on because my income just increased. So it's sort of the same thing here, which is that my safety in the car of what I was feeling when I was driving 70 is exactly the same feeling, but now I could do it at 90. Except the only problem is, You've externalized some of that cost because, like you said, if you get into an accident at that 90 kilometers per hour or uh, miles per hour, first of all, the likelihood of fatality increases, not not linearly, exponentially. And second of all, the people around you who may still have cars that can tolerate what you used to previously drive at 70 are now going to be susceptible to your 90 kilometer an hour uh, accident. So it's kind of a compounding effect of really bad ideas, right? Exactly, exactly. And so, again, we can link the fence paradox back to the concept of uh, internal karma, which is the idea that when we make a new policy, we decide for a new policy, we shouldn't judge the policy for how it will adapt, uh, uh, for the effects that it will have in the current situation, but we should judge the policy based on how the environment will adapt to the policy. 
Yeah, no, that's that's exactly. Uh, I'll give you an interesting example of something similar to that. Um, when I was drive, when I was a, a younger man, and I lived uh, uh, in in India for a short period of time, over there there was this really interesting thing that used to happen, which was that the light system was kind of weird. What would happen is it would go from red to yellow to green. So it's like kind of letting you know, hey, it's almost time for you to go, so get ready. Whereas yeah. in Canada, it's the opposite. It's, it goes from green to yellow to red. And what they noticed was they said, okay, we have two, we have the same exact system. All we do is reverse the order. So we're just letting you know when you can leave and when you should get ready to stop. And, and, and what they tried was they said, okay, if we're letting you know that the light is about to turn amber and then it's going to turn red, you should slow down and stop your car. The opposite exactly uh, happened. People said, oh, it's yellow, better step on it so I can get through this intersection, right? Exactly. So what you, what you were hoping to happen, the exact opposite of it happened. Exactly, exactly. That's a great example. Yeah. So, so we want to tie this into some of the other uh, interesting concepts because like you and I, we share a, an affinity for the ideas of anti-fragility and the ideas of, of trying to look at consequences of your actions, not in the first uh, surface layer, but we try to look at it deeper. Like another example of this uh, whole first, second, and third order consequences is the idea of the invention of the car. Uh, once you invent the car, travel becomes easier, which is great. But accidents go up, right? Because now, you, I mean, the odds of you getting killed by a horse and buggy are very sm small compared to you getting hit and killed by a car. And the idea of uh, the, the entire environment changes now because you have to create parking lots, you have to create roads, you have to create rails, you have to create a whole new infrastructure just to accommodate this first, uh, uh, the idea that came up to you in, in the first place. Now you have cars that you have to pay insurance for and you have all these extra costs that sort of seep into the system. And those are the second, third uh, order consequences of it all. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that as a as a sort of a, a lob ball. Let's see where we can run with it. Uh, yeah, uh, I think that like for these examples, like then uh, we had many more, many other benefits. Like I'm thinking, thanks to the cars, we have ambulances. Uh, we have uh, fire trucks, uh, and then there is also the idea that because we have better infrastructure the market gets larger and what we see is that usually as the markets get larger innovation gets faster and then you can so it, we could make the point that uh, paradoxically that the car also helped uh, the invention of more um, healthy technologies in a way but now yeah. but that's definitely a point about uh, um, about the safety and also like there is nowhere written that cars have to be this unsafe. There are so many right. uh, low hanging fruits that we can take. Uh, I know about uh, about uh, cities that removed the lights. Right. And they, they saw that what happens is that uh, incidents decrease just because drivers are more uncertain and they drive with a bit more careful. There is also the example of, uh, uh, I think it's Sweden or anyway, not Nordic country, that used to, uh, people used to drive on the left side, like in the UK, and right. then they decided to switch to the right side, like in the rest of Europe. And they did it overnight on the right. 1st of January of uh, some day in the 70s, I think. And everyone was expecting an increase in incidents because drivers would be confused, people would make mistakes and so on. But actually, for the first six months, the incidents went down. Just because right. people are so careful. Because of the adaptation period, everybody was more heightenedly aware that it's almost like they're learning to drive all over again. 
exactly. So usually what happens is that the, the, the trick is that you, whenever you have an unsafe system, you want to make sure that people perceive it as unsafe. Right, right. And it just goes back to the idea that you're mentioning how the brain is more of a risk management system as opposed to a perception machine, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this, yeah, this, this, is, this is another thing that, um, so I will just give you some background for the, for, for the idea of the brain is a risk management system. Sure. So how the brain works, more or less, at least from uh, according to some branches of the research, is that it is roughly divided into two, um, let's say, sub-organs, the cortex and the basal ganglia. So the cortex is the part that makes the that thinks basically that receives perception from the outside and tries to make sense out of it and proposes what uh, we can do next. And then all these proposition for next actions they go to the basal ganglia and the basal ganglia decides which one to enact and decides which one instead to inhibit and to block. Right. So what, what happens is that uh, many researchers notice that the basal ganglia takes, decides whether to let an action pass, pass through or to inhibit it based on a single parameter. Uh, basic, basically, it, 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 there are two currents that pass. One that basically is towards enacting the action, another electrical current that is towards blocking it, and then the sum of the two uh, if it's positive, the current uh, passes, passes uh, the action passes through. Now the question is, what is this single parameter that the basal ganglia takes into consideration to decide whether to enact a proposition from the cortex or not? Mm. So th th this is something that I've spent a lot of time thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, up to two years ago, I was thinking that what. Uh, the basal ganglia tried to compute whether this, to decide whether to enact or not a proposition was the um, expected emotional outcome. So basically, okay. it will think something like, how will I feel if I do this action? And if I will feel good enough compared to the costs, I let it pass through. But then this thing, the, the, this idea of mine wasn't working in all scenarios. And right now, I think that instead it's something more related to risk management. Okay. I think somehow it's making a an intuitive computation of the risks. Okay. And it thinks like, will this action uh, reduce my overall risks? If yes, I take it. And by overall risks, I mean both like physical risks, but also society risks. Like, will I be more likely to be ostracized? Will it make me more likely to find a partner? Which somehow it's also risk management uh, uh, evaluation. Like, a partner makes a person less, less risky to, to some kind of effects. Will I make friends? Because friends, they can help in moments of troubles and so on. Right, so yes, right, right. This is this is what uh, what is behind the idea of the brain is a risk management system. So mm -hmm. I'm meaning it from really a neurological point of view. And okay. this goes towards also like what Taleb is saying that rationality is defined by survival. Like right. increases the um, the chance the odds of survival is rational. Right. 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 Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, that's why, like, uh, like I said, uh, one of the I just literally had a, a, a consultation on a client I was working with, and uh, we're just sort of looking at their uh, infrastructure for uh, information for their business. And I kept, he kept saying, "Oh, I want to be optimized. I want to be able to be fast and all that stuff." I said, "That's great, but first, you and I need to get on the same page. When 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 I say optimize, what I mean is redundant. What you mean is just fast." I said, "I need you to understand the difference between the two concepts because." We can build you a system that's really fast, but if one node fails and the whole thing collapses, then you're going to be in big trouble. For me, optimization means we have a redundant system that may take a little bit longer to build, but at least you know that if something goes wrong on one node of that network, that the rest of the system will just be operating as if nothing really happened, which is the entire premise of how the internet was initially constructed anyway, because packets of information that need to be transported from one location to the other don't have to rely on circuit switching where it's almost a direct line from point A to point Z. It's more like these are five different routes, pick whichever one, and at the end we'll do a checksum to make sure the information matches. So what was transmitted and what is received have to tie together. But the way it gets there is really not something that's necessarily deterministic. It's almost probabilistic because it may go through, it'll do a weighted uh, you know, graph calculation. So okay, go this route. And then something along the lines, one of those routers that initially was going to pass that information fails, right? Does that yeah. mean your entire infrastructure goes down? No, it means it gets rerouted. So we go back to this idea of rationality. And I think you're right on that point that it's, it's, it's uh, Taleb kind of phrased it appropriately, which is to say that what is rational is what is survivable, right? And, and, and for us, and I think where the distinction and the confusion sort of arises is as follows. The reason we survive when we're out in the, in the, in the jungle is first order consequences really do matter because when you do see a bear or a panther, your first order your, uh, consequence is I need to get as far away from this thing as possible so I can survive. Yeah. The second order consequence of if I run in the wrong direction and jump off a cliff is not necessarily going to be computed the moment you see that bear. You see what I mean? So, yeah. this sort of ex so this sort of explains the idea of how we end up, uh, we have systems that are built for sugar and fat and we eat to survive. But the second order consequences of it is that if you live in a, in a metropolitan area and you no longer have to worry about bears, then that pizza that you order with all the extra stuff that comes with it is not necessarily uh, serving your, your survival needs uh, going forward. No, no, I'll just say that, like, if you think about it, like, almost all the time that we make wrong decisions uh -huh. uh, is basically either because we, we had an incomplete picture of it, so we took yeah. the right decision based on what we knew, or because something modern is involved. This is true. So the question I have for you is as follows, right? So given that, that we understand the first order consequences and, and, and uh, the second order that comes with it, do you think it's the inability to judge the, the actions based on temporal time, as i.e. your window of, of, of what you're measuring uh, is not 10 years from now, but you're measuring the next 15 minutes, so to speak, right? So I just want to eat pizza because I'm hungry. That's the, that's the measurement you're working with. Is that what leads people to mistake uh, making the good decision versus the bad one. Why, why do you think that like, what we're both trying to get underneath here is we know these these facts to be true, but the question is why do people still continue to persist to yeah. make the wrong decisions? So because the, uh, so uh, going back to the structure of, of the brain, which I think is really important, is so we saw that there is two parts, like the cortex, which is the part that thinks and uh, proposes actions, and then the basal ganglia, that is the part that decides which ones to enact. Mm -hmm. So what happens is that we can be very able to propose 
correct actions based on second order, third order consequences with our cortex. But right. the problem is that then it will still be up to the basal ganglia to, to decide which ones to enact. And the problem is that the basal ganglia, I have, I have some, some reasons to believe, only takes decisions based on first order. Mm. And what do you th what's the time frame against which it measures that first order? Is it, is it like an immediate response? Is it a, a, like what's the delay period between what it's measuring as an objective versus the input it's about to, uh, I think to it receive? measures experience uh, based, based on the past, actually. So what happens is that uh, if we are hit very clearly from the second order consequence and we linked the second order consequence to the action that took it, mm -hmm. then it gets linked as a, in our brain, it gets linked as, as a first order. Like if I do this, then I will have the second order consequence. Right, 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 right. That sort of ties. The, the second order consequences, very often they come so late right. that the brain does not manage to make the connection anymore. Right. Right, right, right. At this intuitive level. So, for example, uh, I make an example with dogs. Uh, okay. Unfortunately, I don't have dogs, but my uh, grandparents had, and I heard some stories about them. And I heard that, like, when you train a dog, what you want to do is that you want to reward it for the good thing he did immediately. Right. Otherwise, he will not be able to, to make the connection. And if you are not able to do this, this reward immediately, there are some devices that they sell on the markets which are called clickers, which is a little device that just make a click when you push mm -hmm. it. And basically the idea is that when the dog does the action that you want him to do, you just put the uh, click with the clicker mm -hmm. and then you can take five seconds, 10 seconds to give him a treat. Ah. But the dog, because you clicked in that moment, will know exactly what is the action that produced the reward. Right. right. So the right, problem right. is it is very, very little attention span compared to humans. We, but we humans still have a very low attention span, uh, probably in the order of hours or days. We are not able to link intuitively like, like the, the consequences of what happens to us the day after. I make you an example. Just today I was having a bit of neck ache. Because, okay. yesterday, because yesterday I worked a lot in a bad posture on my computer. I know that because yesterday I worked uh, in a bad posture, tonight I'm feeling a bit of neck ache, but I do not know it intuitively. My cortex knows it. My basal ganglia does not know it. So tomorrow I will still be working probably with a bad posture. <laughs> so the thing, the thing is that, like, what is the kind of cues that the base that the basal ganglia recognizes it. For example, it's very good at recognizing cues like sugar, um, emotions, and these kind of things, which the modern world got very, very good at, uh, in a way, exploiting, or at least right. that. And the problem is that, like, when we don't, uh, when when there are other actions, and we know that the consequences are not will will appear only in the long time then it's a big work, it's a big mental work of making sure that you manage to, to think about the consequences the moment that you're doing something and to produce into yourself some emotions. 
so that the Beza gang actually manages to link those consequences to the actions that you're doing in that moment. Yeah. That makes sense. So uh, I could tie that into a couple of examples that I've had, which is, uh, so essentially I, I usually engage in one of the following activities, right? It's either lifting weights, swimming, writing code, uh, or um, uh, playing volleyball. Essentially, those are the, the activities I'm most likely to, to engage in. And what I find that's uh, fascinating about that is uh, the programming language I, I, I write in, it's compiled. It's, it's called Go. And if you if you write the wrong code, it just won't even run. So the, the tieback loop as, as in terms of productivity is you instantaneously see that, okay, I wrote this piece of code, but it's not going to run because error number or whatever. You go into that line, you fix it, it starts to work. The yeah. weight room, what's, what's fascinating about it is as you're lifting, you're immediately feeling the consequences of the action. So the tieback to reality between the input and the output is instantaneous. And same thing in the pool, right? So if you jump in the pool and you don't know what you're doing, you will drown instantly, right? The, the feedback loop is almost immediate. So I think that the, 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 the sort of beneficiary understanding of all this is that if you can try to uh, participate in activities where the, the consequence is immediate relative to your input, plus it's lined up with your future uh, uh, best interest, you tend to have an accelerated amount of uh, benefits that you can gain because as you uh, as we're, we're derived from this conversation, what you really want to do is you want to optimize your basal ganglia's uh, priorities to match up with those of your cortex. Exactly, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good way of putting it, yeah. So this ties back into the other ideas where, where, where it comes to uh, fractalism and, 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 and locality and antifragility. And uh, when we discuss politics, it's almost interesting because what ends up happening is like, I'll give you a clear cut example. You have two, uh, one of the biggest issues that always comes up is, is this idea of gun control, right? So a shooting happens, it's horrible. People uh, you know, lose their lives. And then two conversations start. The first conversation is almost always somebody who was a direct impacted victim or indirect, like they, they, they have some emotional connection to the gun being fired and somebody losing a life. And so mm. their conversation revolves around the idea of, oh, we need gun, gun control now because children are dying. And on the other side of the equation, a whole separate conversation from an entirely different reality starts, which is, oh, you need guns to feel safe because I had an intruder come into my house and I wasn't there. And, um, you know, my, my wife or whoever was, they happened to use the gun in self-defense. And so in the instance of looking at these two uh, events, same gun two different outcomes, right? In one instance, a loved one was saved. In another instance, a loved one was lost. And so they're talking over each other and they're not even having the same conversation. And that's why I think that gets lost in translation because <clears throat> first order consequences can be different from the same event depending on which side of the, the barrel of the gun or the muzzle that you're standing on, right? Exactly. And then it also, yeah, it also depends on the environment. Like I live in Italy and Italy, at least in certain areas, it's quite safe. So you can make the argument that there is no much need for, for a gun, but I would right. definitely believe someone who, who lives in a more dangerous area in which you would make a different evaluation. Yeah, so no, it's, this, it's, it's, this, it's this is also, true. also one reason why, for example, like you started this question with fractalism. This is also an, a reason why we need to be able like to have uh, different policies in different places because the environment is different. It's a, total, it's, a total, it's a very reasonable position to say, I believe that in certain areas there should be this policy and I believe that in other areas there should be that policy. 
Yeah, and and but what's interesting about that is uh, rational human beings can usually sit and, and and discuss these matters from from both points of view, right? Like I can say, hey, I can imagine the pain and suffering of a person whose child was unfortunately uh, taken away from them in a school shooting. But I can also empathize with a person who says my 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 house was uh, you know uh, there was an attempted burglary and and you know we used the gun to keep my family safe. So I can emotionally empathize with both sides. But I think what ends up happening as another layer of all this is that depending on which uh, event you can more closely relate to, you're more emotionally tied to that event where your basal ganglia reaction in your to speak in your terms are heightened. And they override the cortex arguments from the other side. You see what I'm saying? So, for example, the person who says, I lost a child, their basal ganglia of the reaction to, the, to guns and gun violence and gun legislation and all that stuff is emotionally heightened and uh, completely overwhelmed by their experience to the point where they can't even hear the neocortex argument of the person who says, I hear what you're saying, but in my case, uh, the gun was used to protect and defend my family. And so as the... Uh, uh, emotional reactions start to get seeped into higher and higher dosages and the concentration gets increased, we start to lose the ability to have a conversation with people who have the opposing point of view. Exactly. Exactly. And that's not even to talk about memberships. Like people might very well like believe something in their own head, but maintain the opposite uh, position because of uh, what their friends think or because that could be a position which is not acceptable in a certain area or whatever these kind of social considerations. Yeah, absolutely. And those social incentives, these social incentives, they are so powerful that sometimes we don't even recognize them and we think that we are actually thinking what is actually socially beneficial for us. There is this whole book by uh, uh, Kevin Simler and Robin Hanson, which is called uh, The Elephant in the Brain which right. makes the point that uh, we very often deceive ourselves to believe what is uh, good for us socially, because if we just were making the, a conscious decision to think something because of our social gains, we will not be convincing enough uh, to our social environment. Whereas mm -hmm. instead, if our brain makes us think that we think a certain position because of uh, reasonable reasons, it's mm -hmm. more likely that we are convincing enough that we convince the other people that we really believe it, and so we can reap the social benefits. Couldn't agree with you more on that one. So how would we, how would we have the ability or like build the ability to look at the second and third effect? Mm, uh, so that's a good question. So usually uh, there are some kind of questions that manage to trick our brain to think more about this, which is like to think like, what should this person do rather than what should I do? Or what I would do if I were in someone else's shoes or what I would do if uh, I were in, an, in another country, like this kind of, of questions that detach ourselves from, from our environment and from the consequences of our actions on ourselves, they usually tend to stimulate our brain to think more about second and third order consequences. Yeah, and, and another idea is simply like accepting the idea that our brain is not very good with thinking about 
about second and third order consequences and still rather, and still rather than trying to predict them, just like observing what's happening more. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, that's where we get that idea where if you're uh, upset with somebody, write the email, send it to yourself, and then wait 24 hours, right? It's sort of that same hack, which is to say, let's desaturate the emotional reaction in you right now before you send this email and, and make it an irreversible situation where your words may not necessarily reflect your best judgment. Yeah, this is very good advice, yeah. Another aspect of that could be that if you constantly engage in activities that line up your uh, long, midterm, and short-term goals um, of, you know, uh, maximizing your potential and, and having the best odds of surviving in that particular plane, <clears throat> if you're constantly engaged in that activity, it's sort of like a muscle, right? You're training it. You're training yourself to see that, hey, there, this is the way forward, right? Like you're training yourself to save money when you get a paycheck. You're training yourself to go to the gym. You're training yourself to eat constantly healthy. And what, what I've noticed uh, happen is when people don't engage in these particular uh, activities regularly, it, they start to lose the ability to start to re-engage in it, right? I've, I've noticed this as a, as a weird pattern that a lot of the friends I've had over the years, they used to be readers, avid readers of books. And, and the reason they were readers is because they would take time to spend reading. But now because of all the constant interactions on social media and their constant little mm. reading of, of a snippet here, a tweet there, a blog post here, they just can't read books anymore. They've lost that, that, that capacity to maintain interest because they're constantly reading for their job or they're constantly reading for you know, social interactions vis-a-vis -vis internet of uh, you know, Facebook and, 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 and Twitter. Exactly. And, and, and I like the point that you make that like they're reading for their job or something like this, because in a way that's like kind of polluting the rewards of reading like start associating read, associating to reading the idea of it's boring without making the distinction between what was being read. Uh, another thing that Taleb uh, said, wrote, is the idea when you read a book that is boring, be bored with that book, not with the act of reading. Yes. And this goes towards the idea that like, um, uh, I will move to the idea, one second, about to the idea of antifragility. Okay. So, so the idea of antifragility is that there are entities which are antifragile and they benefit from uh, volatility. If you look a bit more like what, when does antifragility happen, one requirement is that the entity that is antifragile is composed of a set of entities and some of them, they break, they get damaged, and the rest of the entity and the entity of the world improves out of it. I make an example, natural selection species. Uh, when the unfit members of a species die, the species as a world gets stronger. So the idea, the, the idea about reading books, the idea is that like, if you perceive the activity of reading as a single monolithic activity, then Every time that you read a book that is boring, it's going to impact negatively the activity of reading. But if instead you divide the activity of reading into multiple mini activities, for example, reading this book, reading that book, then what happens is that if you read a bad book, it will only impact one of those mini activities and it will not impact sorry, the activity of reading. Right, right, right. No, I agree with that. This goes to a larger concept, the idea that like, if you want to make yourself improve from, from feedback, 
you need to divide yourself into a set of, of multiple entities and redirect the feedback towards a specific one of those entities. So that it's the, the bad entity that dies and you improve out of it. I'll give you another idea. Uh, so, okay. so another example, the idea that of the, is that if you see yourself as an ensemble of mental patterns, when you receive a feedback, the feedback will go towards uh, the mental pattern of yours, which was bad, and maybe right. you, you, you remove that mental pattern and as a consequence, you improve out of it. But if instead you treat yourself as a monolithic entity, mm -hmm. Where your ego is totally invested into all of yourself, all of your men, of your habits, then when you get feedback, the feedback does not hit the mental pattern; it hits yourself. Right. And, and either you get damaged emotionally yourself, or you somehow find some way to deflect the feedback. But either way, you do not benefit out of it. So the idea is that you make yourself like you fractalize yourself into a set of mental patterns so that you can actually benefit from feedback. What are some things that you practice every day that help you approach life with um, anti-fragility in mind? Yeah, so, 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 so this, this, this basically was, uh, was born into my mind from, the, from an analysis of like uh, anti-fragility because I was interested in... Uh, so Taleb in his fourth book, he talks very much about anti-fragile entities, what happens when they receive... Um, when they undergo stress, when, they, uh, when there is volatility. But the thing is that like, the thing that was um, a bit like not in the focus of the book was like what happens at the limits of it. So for example, humans are anti-fragile entities. If I go to the gym, um, I destroy some muscle fibers and so my muscle grow, but there is a limit to it. If I jump from the 10th floor, I die. Right. So what happens is that an entity is never anti-fragile by itself. Right. It's anti-fragile to a range of stressors. Right. There's an upper and lower bound to that. Exactly. And what happens is that below this lower boundary, nothing happens because the stressor is not strong enough to cause any damage. Mm -hmm. And above this boundary, what happens is that the stressor is so strong that it, that it kills enough of the sub-entities of the antifragile entity, that the antifragile entity does not survive. So right. that's, that's, for example, the, the difference between um, a tragedy that kills, like a, like a tragedy that kills like one percent of the population in the city, then the city usually adapts to this tragedy. But if it kills ninety percent of the population of the city, then it's very likely that the city will die. Right, right. Okay. So, so what happens? So, what happens is that if you try to make like, so I was thinking about like, what's the dynamic aspect of antifragility? So, what makes a human more antifragile? And by more mm -hmm. antifragile, I mean that the range of stressors that cause an antifragile response is larger. Right. And what happens is that so every time that you that a stressor hits you inside your antifragile range, your antifragile range becomes bigger. If I go to the gym and I, and I lift a certain amount of, of weight, the next day I will be able to lift more. But right. if, it, if, some, if a stressor hits very much above the range, 
then it actually causes causes permanent damage. For example, I can blow, I can tear a muscle. Right. And if the stressor hits below the range, what happens? You're wasting your time. Yeah. Wasting your time. Yeah. Exactly. Not I'm wasting my time, but if over enough time no stressor hits me in my antifragile zone, I actually become more fragile. So if I don't go to the gym for a couple of months, then my capacity to lift weights drops down. Right. So right. I become I become more more fragile. So right. so there's this kind of like a dynamic analysis about antifragility. And so the question is like, how do you become more antifragile? So one thing is that you keep exposing yourself to stressors that come, that hits you into your antifragile range. And the other right. thing is that you keep separating yourself into sub-entities and you try to make sure that, uh, that those sub-entities, they're not dependent upon each other so that you don't have any, um, uh, any systemic risk. Right, right. So okay. one of the things that I find interesting about what you just stated there is uh, this old saying that goes, you are not your job, you're, you do a job, right? So in essence, don't tie your identity to your work, because then if your work suffers, you suffer. You don't want to be in that position, right? Exactly. So, so then, one of the... Go, yeah. go ahead. Go, go. Uh, so what I was going to say is uh, one of the things that I've been, uh, you know, just intuitively practicing uh, over a number of uh, years is um, I have set periods of time during the day where I'm like, okay, I'm just going to learn technical code-related stuff for this block of time. And then I have another block of time where I'm like, I'm just going to read poetry or listen to music for the purposes of feeding that other aspect of my soul, so to speak. But in this case, in your, in your terms and uh, usage patterns, as I'm going to use a different energy pattern of, uh, uh, of my personal self to feed it poetry or to, to, to listen to some comedy or to get on Twitter. Because one of the things that I do, which is unusual, is, and I always tell people this, if you really want to get good at, at life, get on Twitter and just uh, look at everybody who you disagree with uh, on virtually every angle of, 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 of you know, your life and your philosophy. Follow them and just look at their tweets. And as it comes into your timeline, They'll uh, initially they'll you know give you this reaction of wanting to just disagree with them and argue with them and, and name call, but after a while you train yourself to say okay look these are just finite thoughts and an infinite scroll of things that are possible, and so in a way you're exposing yourself to their ideas even though you may disagree with them sometimes vehemently and violently disagree with them, but learning not to react to them in that particular way is training yourself so to speak to become more anti fragile. So you avoid the bubble of, of having people who think the same way as you do, and you get to expose yourself to a whole variety of ideas. And uh, to, to go back to your concept about variability, and most people, they don't really not necessarily understand that variability concept. And, and I can give you an illustration of how that would work. So in today's day and age, we have you know a nice heated home and a heated office and a heated car. And so the temperature against which you're exposed to is essentially almost always the same. And so to Luca and uh, Taleb's uh, notion, Take a cold shower, and what that'll do is it'll really expose you to a massive change in temperature from one point to the next. And so your body will react to that because it's like, oh, you know, not every day is you know, fun and glory. There's moments during the day when I take a shower that's really cold. The temperature is like really below the threshold of what I'm used to, and your body reacts to that differently versus if you're always taking nice warm showers and you're always in a car that's perfectly uh, conditioned, you know, if it's really warm out, you put out air conditioning to max so that you're comfortable. And if it's really cold out, you put the heat on. 
So you're maintaining a artificial temperature that's not in tune with the actual environment outside of you. That's exactly. what they maintain, right? So they maintain the level of antifragility uh, in the summer when it's when it's when it's warm out. Instead of indulging and constantly having the AC on, go sit in a sauna. And that's just a weird thing to do, but it's it's actually a perfect way to say, look, it's hot outside, but it's hotter on the in, in the sauna. So if I expose myself to that and I go back outside, my body will know how to adjust to this because it just got exposed to even more of it. Exactly. Uh, there is there is also one more thing, uh, one more concept that I want to link on this. Sure. Uh, because the idea of the, of the cold shower, I, I, I think, is very good. Uh, there is another thing, like, if you go into the cold shower, like, I'm, I, I don't know for yourself, but, like, I remember very clearly the first time that I went into a cold shower, I was almost feeling pain. <laughs> yep, that's and, true. And the reason, and, but actually, the reason why I was feeling pain is because my body was not used to it, and he was recognizing a potential source of danger. Because, like, if you stay in a cold shower for, like, one minute, it's not going to harm you for at all. But if you stay, like, for half an hour in a cold shower, then it's actually a, p- a potential danger danger for yourself. Right, because you went above I mean, the above it threshold. Can make you right. Yeah, exactly. And so the thing is that your brain, your brain produces pain every time that you are vulnerable. Not every time that you actually suffer, suffer damage. Right. right. This, it's an early warning system. Exactly. This, this, is, a big, this, is, this is an important uh, distinction. i make another example. If you touch a hot, a hot pot for one second, you feel pain and actually your skin gets a bit burned. So there right. was a good reason for feeling pain. If you touch a hot pot for one split second, your skin does not get damaged but you still feel pain. Right. So what happens is that this proves the idea that pain is not necessarily a sign of damage. Pain is always a sign of vulnerability. It's an alarm, it's an alarm that's been tripped. Exactly, because, the, because feeling pain is not useful for the fact of feeling pain. It's useful because then it adapts our behavior. Right, so right, the, right. If, otherwise, we will just not feel any pain. That, that, yeah. that make us better warriors, for example. But actually, we feel pain because we want to adjust our behavior. So the thing is that our brain actually infers pain. And it, only, it not only uses our senses, so if it feels a lot of hot, or it feels, it feels like some sharp surface that cut us or something like this, but it also uses other kind of influences from our brain to know whether we're supposed to feel pain. Uh, there, there, there is this kind of example of like, there, there are medical reports of soldiers during the First World War. They will get shot at uh, one of their leg, a bomb. The, uh, they, will, they will lose one of, our, of their leg. And yet the, medic, the medics on the field, they report that those patients, they, do, they did not need any morphine because the procedure was that those patients, they would immediately be sent home. So basically, the brain of those patients recognized that they were actually in a safer position without the leg, rather than keeping fighting in the trenches. And so it will not, it will automatically suppress part of the pain. Wow, that's fascinating. I mean, obviously, that's not an experiment we want to run these days where you uh, <laughs> sever your leg. But again, 
I think that kind of goes back to the original idea of survivability, right? So in that particular instance, the survival of being remaining alive is greater than the cost of paying the, the price of losing a leg. Obviously, in, in our modern day and age, that that scenario rarely comes up. But if, if you're not, if you find yourself in that situation, uh, the question is, do you want to lose a leg or do you want to lose your life? Obviously, that's a simple choice, right? Exactly. I, I, I make another example. There was this study that they did. I don't remember in which country. Uh, they basically uh, get a pharmacy to propose free gluten intolerance tests to all their patients, uh, okay. to everyone who was working in. But the thing was that the, this pharmacy, they will tell everyone that they had gluten intolerance, even if it wasn't true. Okay. And they will schedule them for a follow-up test in two weeks. And then after two weeks, what they discovered is that 25% of those patients developed the symptoms of gluten intolerance, even if they did not have gluten intolerance. So basically, it was their brain inferring, oh, you're eating gluten, uh, but this is dangerous for you. So I will produce some symptoms so that you adjust your behavior and stop eating gluten because, it, I, because I just learned that it's dangerous for you. Oh, okay. That's interesting because one of the, the, the aspects I remember, uh, there was a time where one of the things people would suggest that if you want to quit smoking, for example, they would say to you, okay, you know what? Just smoke an entire pack, one cigarette after the other, so that you feel sick and nauseated to the point where you associate the, the act of smoking a cigarette with this particular feeling. So yeah, it sort of feels like it's the same hack, right? Exactly, exactly. Uh, I just want to make one precision, one clarification. By, by that yeah. experiment, I do not mean at all that gluten intolerance is a disease that does not exist. It does right. exist, it does right, exist right. and it has been proven. What I'm meaning is that of the people that, uh, that show symptoms of gluten intolerance, only some of them uh, actually have gluten intolerance and others only infer the risk of gluten intolerance. And so it's always useful to, when you display the symptoms of something, to check if you actually have the underlying disease. I see, I see. Amber, did you have a question? Yeah, uh, in regards to um, pain, there's some people that are addicted to pain. You know, they um, stay in painful relationships or they um i don't know some kind of illness how would you advise them to get out of that situation or why are they even in that situation in the first place why are they addicted to that kind of pain so i couldn't i couldn't hear which kind of pain so i think she meant emotional Sorry? pain she meant emotional pain in regards to let's say you're at a job where you really hate uh working there it's oh. bringing you stress but you're even though your body's giving you the alarm system to say hey you know what maybe you shouldn't be here uh, what, she, what she's really inferring is why do people, even in the, in the face of pain that physically makes them sick to be at their particular job, why do they stay? Why don't they just figure out a way out there? Well, sometimes it's because like, so there are different reasons. Sometimes it's because they fear other kind of consequences, like social consequences, um, like what would uh, my parents, my spouse, my, uh, my friends think if I quit? Another reason is sometimes because they do not have options or because they think that they do not have options like maybe they would very very well find a job but they think that they would not be able to uh yeah i think that those are the two main uh, uh the, those are the two main reasons and the second reason like not feeling um thinking that they do not have options is actually the pattern that you see 
behind uh, all toxic relationships. So for example, like there are a lot of people that have uh, uh, a toxic relationship with uh, the romantic partner or with a friend of them or with, with their work. And usually what a pattern that usually you see is that those people, they think that they do not have any other options. Uh, sometimes it's false and they should just like try or ask other people and sometimes it's actually true. And then uh, probably the, the way to go is to try to work, work on themselves or take some adjustments so that they become worth of more options. But I think that in general, like to answer the question, it's always a problem of, uh, of, of risk management and survival. So usually, like even if you recognize that staying at your job is bad for you, you tend to fear that the alternative is even worse. It's always like a kind of uh, relative uh, uh, computation evaluation. Right, so the fear of like the unknown. Yes, yeah. It's the devil you know versus the devil you don't, so to speak. Uh, yeah, uh, and, and this is also one, one reason again, well, like it's important to try to kind of like fractalize the things that are bad for you. So for example, like if you think that your job is bad for you, uh, a good approach is to think like which aspects of my job are actually bad for me, which ones are neutral, and is there any aspect which is good? Uh, this way you kind of like get less heat as a wall and it becomes, it tends to become more sustainable. It kinds of become more like affordable to feel and and sometimes you will even think about some solutions because like if you think like my job is bad for me as a wall then there are not many options but if instead you think like this part of my job is really bad for me yes then there are, it opens up to to possibilities for solution right that's sort of like your idea of uh, uh this book sucks but reading itself doesn't right it sort of ties back to that exactly. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So so this brings us to the other uh, conversation that you and I have been engaged with sometime on Twitter, which was that we were both sort of looking at the same problem head on, which was the idea of um, uh, looking at the university systems and how education has become this monolithic approach and how society has attached to this, the idea that if you don't go, that you're going to set yourself up for failure, which clearly is evidently not true, right? So. We have a, a, an anti-fragility problem even within that particular approach because everybody's supposed to go out take out these loans against these particular degrees that may or may not yield fruit in the future. Right? So you're borrowing, so to tie back to our very original conversation, against your future potential earnings uh, in a field that may or may not even harvest any, an actual fruit. Meanwhile, the money that's being made is actually uh, on you by the administration of these particular universities. Exactly. Exactly. I, I, I feel this, uh, this argument very much because for, for a couple of years I've been running courses uh, myself, like all by myself, like I rent the room, I travel to a new city, I rent the room, I invite students and they're basically a kind of like um, a condensed management or MBA degree, if you want to call it this way, in two or four weeks or four days because, right. because I... Because I have the idea that what is 
that and there are, there is not enough fundamentals to teach to last for a whole year and people and those courses they propose one full year just because they need to justify uh the tuition fee that they ask and so i'm basically i'm doing it for uh incredibly low amount of money uh well uh and the problem is that i have huge troubles about getting students in because uh because i'm not a certified institution and and basically people they they really uh, do not there is very few people that want to to study for the sake of what they're learning and people instead and a lot of people instead they want to study for getting a certificate one thing is that like what we saw is that certif uh, certificates in this case like uh, degrees they started as being an insurance policy for the company so like i hired this person and then and if he has a degree i know that at least he will have the competencies to do this this and that they started becoming insurance policy for the candidates right like i go study something and i'm sure that i will, that i will have a job right but now now we are beyond that and degrees are so um, ubiquitous that now they do not guarantee almost anything anymore apart from selected fields which are supply constrained compared yeah, to no, that goes back to the original uh, uh, set of ideas that we talked about which was that you create an environment you put a new stimulus into that environment the environment adapts to it and so now what you have is you have people who are good at get, getting degrees versus people who are good at solving problems and getting jobs that are actually creating value for others yeah. so the value system of the university is no longer to have educated uh, highly accomplished people who can actually go do stuff in the real world it's more about you know get into a good school to get into a good high school get in good high school and get good marks you get into a good university get good grades you can go get a master's degree get good grades you can get a phd it's all trained to cycle back into the same set of doors right and 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 and, and we think one of the things that we think that's that's uh, problematic with this approach is that there's a disconnect from reality uh, between practice and theory and and the disconnect tends to grow larger and larger as the institution becomes uh, sort of worshipped because essentially the, yes. what, what I've what I've noticed and, and, and we could speak to this is that the universities originally gained their prominence because of just a, a couple a handful of fields right like science engineering in the sense of medicine and and, and you know uh, physics and stuff where you actually had to have a high level of competence to even be able to make it and then to survive through that and because that's what we associate a university with you know doctors engineers this type of stuff. It started to it started to sort of rent seek and, and it, for lack of a better term to say oh university equals good but what else can university produce and still maintain its uh its 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 sort of halo right the halo effect of the of the the real uh, useful subject matters has now been transposed onto other fields and degrees that are virtually worthless yet somehow are charged for the same price exactly uh, I have a, I have one theory on like also like. Uh, about this transition. Uh, so there is this concept called the adoption curve, which is kind of the idea that every time that there is a new technology or a new product, first it gets adopted by a few people which are like kind of the innovators, which they can afford to fail, and they adopt it just because it might be 
it might give them a hedge. It might allow them to do something new that no one that no one can do. Uh, for example, the first people that uh, were using a computer to code, or the first people that try a new um, fashion item. Then, okay. then the technology gets adopted by the early adopters, which are the people that are using it because it works for them. And then it gets adopted by the majority, which is the people that are adopting it because it works for others. And at the end, you have the laggards, which are the people that will never adopt it unless coerced. Sure. sure. So what happens is that at the beginning, the university, uh, they tended to be um, a place for those innovators, the people that could afford losing time and money to go there because they will help them do something new. Then it got, then I will say like at the beginning of this century, I'm putting it very, like very broad dates. Beginning of the century, oh, of the previous century, it started, people started going there because it was good for them. Then, lately now we are in the phase in which people, the kind of people that go to the university now is because it's good for others. So they're right. not doing it because they're interested in what they're learning. They're interested in what the degree is, is doing for others. So it makes them more likely to hire them. Yeah, it's sort of like a social proof, right? Exactly, exactly. And unfortunately, what happens is that this is happening both on the student sides and on the teacher sides. So at first, you started having teachers who, who went there because they were like very interested in the, in the act of teaching for different reasons. And right now, you have some teachers which are interested in these and some other teachers who are going there for questions of prestige, job, uh, money, um, whatever, but like not exactly for the act of, of teaching. I'm not saying everyone, of course. I'm just saying that the average is shifting towards the right side of this adoption curve. And what happens is that every time that there is this shift into a technology of the average users that is the new adopter of this technology, what happens is that the innovators, the people that were the first ones to adopt this technology, they usually jump to the next technology. So yeah, they're no longer around. Yeah, so what happens is that one century ago, the innovators, they were the most likely people, an innovator was kind of like likely to join university somehow, or at least like to, um, and instead, like now, they are likely instead to uh, to skip it or to find other ways of um, of getting what they were what they would have gotten from university in another time. Right, I mean, right. Also, because like if you think about it, like if if education was a problem of supply, mm -hmm. we would have solved it with the internet, because now the internet makes the supply of knowledge available to everyone. But the fact that there are still people which are not getting the educations they want above a certain level is a demonstration that education is a demand problem as well. Yeah, uh, one of the things that I, I, I've noticed, and, and, and this is sort of a, an area where most people, and I sort of disagree, 
So <clears throat> we go back to this idea of the demand curve for the early adopters, the the you know the laggards and whatnot. Um, I've noticed that that sort of idea is permeating the culture where we base that idea on the adoption of technology in the following sense. Um, everybody has a cell phone, but not everybody had a, la a, a computer, right? And it was just not a, a thing that they did. Yeah. So what, what's happened is they've sort of taken this idea that has a giant glowing example that the entire world could point to that could say, hey, look, this is a, a, a smartphone and that's the internet. And because everybody has a lot of, you know mobile phones that we know how to jump on the internet with, they, they take this idea and they try to transpose it onto other fields where it doesn't necessarily hold true. So I've, I've noticed this, that there's this conflation of that, this curve, and it's always spoken about without giving the proper context, because not every technology is suitable for global consumption. Some technologies are obviously suitable for global consumption, but the vast majority that are invented for, for creative purposes are not necessarily going to be uh, in that particular vein, right? So I'll give you an example of where, where this, this idea can uh, sort of give us an insight of what's going to be coming, which is the idea of um, if you watch how Apple has been operating since they switched over from Apple Computer to just Apple Inc., and they've slowly shifted away from just being sort of a, a, this computer company to like they're shifting over to health. And I think when they shift over to health, what they're looking for is plowing the largest harvest they can get because every human being on earth, regardless of age, wealth, ethnicity, you know, uh, preferences, political leanings, or whatnot, we're all susceptible to the same health problems. So they're shifting in that direction to say, we're going to take our know-how and we're going to start working in the field of uh, solving health problems through technology. And because we're solving a problem that everybody has, but we're doing it in a narrow slice of how we apply our competence to it, they're creating opportunities for themselves that are much larger than other people really realize. Yes. Whereas the confusion of that is, if you look at every other company, and, and this is where the contrast comes into play, is they, they see the first order effect of, oh, go to the area where you have the maximum potential for a market size. And what they forget is that just because the potential is there doesn't mean you're going to actually have the capacity to capture it. And so the opposite of the Apple moving into health field, which is they're doing it quietly. I mean, it doesn't take too much uh, insight to sort of see it. But the opposite of that effect is this idea of artificial intelligence and, and, and machine learning and all that. Every company nowadays, they just literally have to say machine learning and artificial intelligence just so they can feel like they're part of the conversation, even if they don't necessarily have the capabilities or the understanding or the intuition or the need for machine learning into their business, they still feel the need to be in that conversation to say, yes, we also have artificial intelligence that will help you pick the best color for your house next time you're painting, right? It doesn't, it doesn't always necessarily translate perfectly. It seems like sometimes people do get fooled by an idea in one field and they try to force it in, and, and shoehorn it into theirs and it doesn't necessarily fit. Oh yeah, oh yeah, totally. And I think that like, again, like the discriminator for like, those for those companies that are adopting in a way machine learning just for the sake of this is because like those those people those people are those people that like adopt an idea a technology for the effect that it does on others skipping completely like the effect that it does on them uh -huh. and and that's kind of like um, that's like kind of like in a way like I, I believe problematic for machine learning in the way that is diverting resources like developers, 
time and so on from mm -hmm. applications that actually would be useful to applications that are like um, just facade. Yes. Yeah, then there is the other argument that I'm, that like it might be a good thing if you consider that like artificial intelligence might sometimes might someday be an existential risk, but that's that's another that's another that's that's another question. Well how about how about we dive into that question? What do you think of that? I think that it's an existential risk for sure. Okay. And why do you think that's true? Because I think that like uh, a species success is kind of directly um it's directly proportional to the speed on which it can iterate mm -hmm. upon itself, so like at which it can mutate, it can evolve, and uh, and to how it's able to this, to be immune to systemic risks. Okay. Uh, for sure, artificial intelligence scores extremely high on the first parameter, the one of iteration. Like the moment that we will be able that we will have like uh, an artificial intelligence that manages to replicate itself and to evolve itself, then it will like evolve super fast. Okay. I think that there is no question on this. The question is more on when and whether. Mm -hmm. But I'm quite sure that like if it happens which might be very low probability, I can see that, but if it happens, then, then from down there, it would be like incredibly fast. And the second thing is like, is it subject to systemic risks? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe yes, maybe not. But the problem to me is that if it's, it's quite hard to for, foresee a systemic risk for artificial intelligence, which is not a systemic risk for humans as well. Mm. We, meaning well, that the worst case is like complete annihilation and the best yeah. case is that we, we go back technology, we go backwards to, um, to 500 years ago. Well, so I'll give, you, I'll give you my take on that front and I'll, and I'll tell you why. It's because I come at it from both perspectives, right? So I, I work with, with software and I work with developers and I work with people who are in the machine learning space who actually do some of the... The, the, the work that goes with it. And so it's sort of like this. And, and, I, and I'll tell you, and I've read Nick Bostrom's uh, book on superintelligence and James Borat's book, and I've heard uh, Elon and all these guys talk about the existential risk of it. And I, and I have the following take on it. And, and here's my take. The smartest people since Alan Turing's time, uh, you know, Claude Shannon included, Von Neumann, all these guys, every single person who replicates a tiny slice of human cap capacity onto a machine immediately extrapolates it to say that eventually the machine will do what I could do. And that's where they lose me because I look at it and I say, yeah, yeah, it's possible. It's a very, 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 very low probability event that it's possible to replicate what it is that we do onto a machine. But I don't think it's very probable. probable. And, 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 and in this case, I have sort of like I have my foot in both camps. I'm not saying we're never going to have artificial intelligence. I'm saying that the likelihood of it actually being invented by us is very small. And so as a consequence of it, worrying about it too soon may not necessarily be fruitfully, uh, a fruitful use of one's time. Because Nick Boston's argument was that if you, uh, you know, uh, let's say we start this process and it takes us a thousand years to get to that. 
after the thousandth year, on the day one after that, if if this particular intelligence comes into existence and it just destroys everybody, then all our future descendants will look back at our time and say, the one thing that should have mattered to you is the one thing you didn't pay attention to, which is that you didn't pay attention to not letting this technology get out of hand. And so that argument sounds cogent on the surface layer, but the, the counter argument I present to that is, we're sort of speaking in the hunter-gatherer stage of, of, of our capacities with, when, it, when it comes to dealing with computation, because it's only been around for less than 100 years. And we're kind of like, we're worried about bears. And, our, and people who are worried about existential risk of AI are kind of worried about um, a, a super collider that's literally 10,000 years from now. And that super collider coming into existence and creating a black hole and sucking the earth into it, right? So I, I, I don't dismiss them outright to say you're, you're wrong. I dismiss them from the point of view of saying you're worried about the wrong thing way too early because it's not just being right that matters. It's also being right at the right time. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I totally, I totally agree on this. And also, like, there are two, 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 also two other considerations. Like, one other consideration is that, like, even if it were a risk, can we actually, is there something that we can do about it? To which my answer is probably not really. Exactly. Because, like, how do you forbid people to develop it? It's exactly. basically, it's basically impossible. And, uh, and, and so, my, my my answer to the to the to the to, to the question is like we should paradoxically it should be an invitation for us to like keep working on it so that we have a chance that if it happens at least it happens in the hands of people who care right and and like we can keep being aware of the risks because probably if we keep being aware of the risks it will there is a chance still that we can like somehow manage it like and then there is uh yeah so yeah, yeah. That's, that, that's the thing like the question why the question the question so the answer to is artificial intelligence an existential risk and should we stop working on this they probably uh get different 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 answers yeah uh, yeah, so in that particular front, I, I, I say the following, right? Like there are certain um, uh, activities that are like tugs of war, right? You need a lot of uh, resources on one side and a lot of resources on the other, and you're just pulling. But there are other activities where it's like a foot race, right? I, I don't need, if, if I'm the fastest man on earth, let's say I'm Usain Bolt, I could race against 7 billion people and I could still win, right? Because I'll, I'll, I, their, their efforts does not affect my efforts, and my results no. are independent of their particular accomplishments and in, in terms of what they're trying to pursue. You see what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. So, so, so on this front, with, with regards to artificial intelligence, the first order effect, second order effect of it, to, to tie back into our original uh, thesis here, is as follows, right? So whichever, uh, it, it, throughout history, whichever civilization develops the, uh, the, the most cutting edge weapon tends to be the hegemonic uh, power uh, that basically controls what's what's going on around them, right? The Mongols, and then you know we had the the the, the Germans, you had the Americans, and now you know the superpowers between them to, to see who can develop nuclear weapons. And so, in in essence, the artificial intelligence race is sort of more of a militaristic race than anything else because you have, let's say, you get all the people who are uh, actively involved in this particular field to say, okay, guys, before you pursue this, we just need a set of ethical guidelines that you have to follow. But the problem is, like you said earlier. 
I don't need a license to code. I can just go buy a laptop from a, the, the corner store, uh, go to the programming language that, of my, my, my particular uh, brand, download the source code, get a couple of books and start writing code. It's kind of like you can't stop me from writing um, uh, a play that's going to uh, you know, rival Shakespeare. Just like yeah. you can't really stop me from rivaling a book that's going to be as heinous as uh, Mein Kampf, right? So exactly. in this particular angle, it's weird because you say, okay, we kind of want everybody to do this right. But at the same time, we know that militaristically, <clears throat> some of the people involved uh, from various states uh, are not necessarily doing this for the benefit of everybody. They're doing it for the benefit of themselves. So you really can't stop even if you wanted to because you have this sort of game theory model where it's like, okay, we'll stop doing this in the hopes that nobody else does it. And unfortunately, it, that, that analysis fails really, really quickly. The only good side of all this that I, that I have, and it, and it goes back to Nassim, is uh, and even Jeffrey Hinton, one of the, the founding fathers of the current uh, approach to artificial intelligence. And, 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 and I like Jeffrey Hinton's idea because what he said was uh, neural networks and, and, and you know, all these particular structures that we're using are one way to do this. It's not the only way to do this, which is, a, which is a fantastic answer that can only come from somebody who's obviously quite intelligent and understands the risks of what they're involved with. But what's, yeah. what's interesting about that is that he said maybe this approach that we've taken is essentially leading to a blind alley that looks promising at the beginning and gets nowhere. And, and exactly. Nassim's point of view, which was really fascinating on this front, is um, he said, look, the thing that's interesting about machine learning is it infers uh, 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 particular connections between data that's in the past. But as you know, risk is in the future. And in the future, it's opacity. We don't know what's coming your way. And so if a system is predicated upon analyzing only past data, it will never see what's coming ahead of it, right? So exactly. that kind of gives me the sort of comfort level to say, okay, look, yes, we may eventually one day uh, come up with the idea of, you know, because right now, if you ask uh, 100 people, can you define consciousness? You're not going to get one answer that matches against across all those people. And you could yeah. bring them from various disciplines, right? Physicists, biologists, philosophers, lawyers, yeah. uh, doctor, whatever the case may be. And if you ask uh, the same 100 people, hey, what's your definition of, of, of intelligence? And again, you'll still not get a cohesive answer that everybody agrees upon. And from where I sit, and at least from the perspective that I look at this, is I think that any sort of thing that you want to identify as artificial intelligence is at the intersection between what is defined as intelligence and what is defined as consciousness. And since we can't define either of those fields, we're shooting in the dark trying to find what's in the middle of all that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... If I could speak one second about um, alternative architectures to neural networks. Yes, please. Uh, because there's this problem that like neural networks are, have indeed this problem that they basically uh, reduce complexity and are fully based like on what happened in the past. So basically they're trying to... So basically what a neural network does in a way is that it tries to uh, reduce the entropy of the stimulus and it tries to reduce it to something that it saw in the past. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm making a lot of simplifications here. Yeah, of course, for the uh, sake of argument. Uh, for, for the people that are interested, on, on, on my website, on the page with my research, I published a few papers on alternative uh, architectures that uh, maintain the complexity and they just shift it, shift the complexity on different uh, sp spaces. Because basically what you observe that our brain is doing uh, is that it does not reduce the 
um, the complexity of a stimulus that comes, it kind of keeps the complexity constant, but it just shifts the dimensions on which this complexity is represented from the dimensions that represent the stimulus to the dimensions that represent the meaning of the stimulus. Mm -hmm. So I make an example. Okay. Uh, we, we, you, you hear, you hear, and you, your, your eyes they see something. So what happens is that your eyes they, like the neurons of the of the retina, they transmit some impulses to your brain. And when they get the brain, they start undergoing, they start passing through a set of brain regions. Okay. And each brain region applies the same the same kind of algorithm to it. And we know that because the, at the microscopic level, at the local level, the architecture of the cortex is identical, almost. Like, whatever small piece of the cortex you take, uh, on a, on, on a vet, um, it's made of columns that are, all look the same, right. almost. So it means that they kind of apply the same algorithm. So the question is, what does this algorithm do? And what I propose is that it does, every time every brain region applies two transformation. The first one is that it compresses the signal, and the second one is that it expands it. Okay. What happens is that it compresses the signal upon the dimensions that are already present in the signal, and then it expands the signal, adding new dimensions to the signal, and using the rest of the brain to put data points on those dimensions. I make you an example. Okay. So you see, you see a leg of a dog. Uh, the first thing that you see, the first brain region that see that gets the stimulus, it gets some uh, brown patches, some um, white patches, uh, and that's it. The second region gets some um, shapes. The third region, now I'm simplifying a lot, the third region, yeah. it tells you that what you are seeing, it's a leg. Right. And the fourth region, it's telling you that it's the leg of, uh, of your dog. So what happens is that uh, the, the, the complexity was kind of the same. Like, let's say that we were using the same amount of bits to represent the same information. But in the first region, 100% of those bits they were used to represent visual information. In the second region, most of the bits were still used to represent visual information, and a few of them, they were used to represent shapes. In the third information, part of the bits, in the third region, part of the bits, they were representing visual information. Part of the bits, they were representing features, like a leg. And in the fourth region, part of the bits, they start representing meaning, like it's right. your job. Right. So what happens is that in, what our brain does compared to neural networks is not that it reduces complexity, it just reduces complexity upon the, dimen the sensorial dimensions, and it increases complexity towards uh, the semantic dimension. So what, what, it means, what it means for us. And this is something that current neural network architectures are completely missing. Right. And there are other 
architectures that start to be developed now. Uh, the main one, as far as I know, is Numenta's architecture, which is a, called, a framework called Hierarchical Temporal Memory. I developed another framework that you can people can find on my website, which is called uh, Functional Hierarchical Memory, which is a framework that keeps this uh, complexity constant. Right. And, so, and so I think that this goes towards the architectures. And then there is a second thing, the, the, a second, comp, um, a second, let's say, paradigm. The, the okay. current, current artificial intelligence is developed in a modular way. So we kind of have the module that um, performs text recognition. We have the module that uh, that like there are, we have different modules that do different tasks. Okay. And they kind of communicate between them in a very limited way, usually through some uh, APIs. So which means that each module does not see the full complexity of the other modules. Ooh. And this approach means also that they do not see the full complexity of the, of the feedback. Paradoxically, there is a lack of skin in the game from each module. In humans, each module of a human for example, each organ of a human, they have skin in the game into, into the human itself. Each part of our brain uh, is subject to the same global feedback. So what happens is that I, modules of our brain, they're not very good at what the module is supposed to do, but they're very good at making us take the right decisions as a wall. Right. Which, is the reason, which is the reason why our visual cortex is not very good at telling us what's in front of us, because it has all kind of optical illusions. We see human faces into the clouds and these kind of things. But actually, these things are actually good for us because the same mechanism in the brain that make us see human humans in, inside the clouds is also the same mechanism that make us see a tiger hidden inside bushes in the jungle. Yeah, no, exactly so right. Brain, the perception areas of our brain, they did not develop as machines for perceptions. They developed as machines for actions. Right. And this is something that is lost in current, in current uh, artificial intelligence development. There is this tendency to make different modules, which is very convenient for the developers. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not how systems evolve. S systems are, do not have this reduction. Yeah, yeah no, so, so on that front, I mean, I, it speaks to the following thing, right? So uh, one of the things uh, in the leading area of research for um, artificial intelligence, I really want to stop using that term. I just want to stick to the term of what's actually happening, which is machine learning, yeah. is the idea of one-shot learning, right? You don't have to show me 10,000 pictures of a dog for me to recognize a dog when I see a dog. Yeah. Right. And this is important because it goes to the other layer of it, which is it's not the text, it's the meaning of the text that actually matters. Yeah. Right? And human beings are so complicated that I can write text and I could actually have subtext within my text so that people can read between the lines. So there's the first order of what you just read, and then there's a second order of what I meant by what I what you just read, right? So it's, it goes back to Walt Whitman's um, yeah. uh, famous quote, uh, you know, my words mean nothing, they're meaning everything, right? So, so when you look at a complexity of that kind of a construct, which is a very simple sentence if you really think about it, or if you think of a, a sentence in the following sense that, I know, I serve truth, you know, that's just three words, 
but it has two meanings, right? And uh, with those two meanings, eventually impossibility, because what does that actually really imply? And so what I what I find fascinating about this is, and and here's again where I have some disagreement with my with my friends on the AI side of the argument, which is that human language is sort of like it's it, or language in particular is actually, uh, if you look at it, it's on a spectrum, right? So on the left, which is where the computer lives, everything must be precisely defined for a very specific task for a specific meaning, right? So you have a assign integer or, or, or whatnot, on, and the compiler knows what that means. And on the right side of it, you have sentences that human beings use. So for example, if I said, hey, uh, can you book me a flight, right? That's a very specific meaning that only human beings would understand. And even human beings would only understand that if they know what uh, uh, booking a flight means, because if you've never really traveled before, or if you're uh, a tribes member in some uh, part of the jungle that's never you know, had to process booking a, an airplane uh, trip, those sentences, they, they don't mean anything to you, right? So yeah. I think what, what's interesting about this is, and I think this is where the, the, the problems that are underlying where all the self-driving cars come from, which is that to get a car to drive under ideal conditions is not difficult. To get a car to drive in the conditions that human beings drive in, yes, we are the, the problems of, 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 of accidents in the sense that you know, we drive when we're tired, we drive when we're texting, we drive when we're, uh, you know, drunk. Uh, but at the same time, if, if you put a human being on the road, and like you said, they're in an environment where they have to pay attention and they have to get from point A to point B, the amount of things that they can actually uh, avoid if they're really paying attention to the road far exceeds what a computer can do. For example, uh, if, if there's a cat running, uh, and and, and it's, it's, it sort of looks like it's running toward the car, but it's not a car. A human being have a different reaction to it than uh, the current artificial or machine learning algorithms that are being designed. And I think that's what's throwing them all off because we are capable of adapting to unique information. Right? The, so whenever entropy starts to hit and collide with us, we have this ability to sort of look at what's there. Like you said earlier, like we take the information, we collapse it down from a... Uh, a number of dimensional possibilities down to a single vector. And then we map that against our personal experience, which is, again, we expand that signal, to, to, to borrow your phrase, and we map it against what we've seen before. Right? So if I see a, a, an ambulance, I know what that actually implicitly means. Not in the sense that, oh, pull the car over to the right uh, because you got to let the ambulance go through. It's, you know what, there's a, probably a person in there, uh, maybe they had a heart attack, maybe they had a lifetime of bad choices, and they're just on their way. Hopefully, they can get saved. There, there's like 50 different meanings you could ascribe to just seeing an ambulance pass by you, right? And so exactly. this, this, this approach that we're talking about here, which is why I keep uh, going back to it, which is that, you know, um, I think for the vast majority of, of, of people in that particular field, and this is just my current understanding of it, and I'm uh, open to changing my mind tomorrow. In fact, I'm open to changing my mind an hour from now, but my understanding is that the vast majority of machine learning and artificial intelligence and all this stuff is useless, but some of it is useful. And what I mean by that is in particular instances, some of that information is very useful. Some of the algorithms are very useful. But the problem is we take those instances and we map it against everything. And I'll give you an example of where, where I can sort of uh, highlight this point. So for example, let's say you build a company and you're, you're, you're interested in tracking information. So you collect everything, right? Oh, what is this person like? Where do they sign in from? you know, what device that they use, what browser they're using, all that stuff, so that you can potentially infer they may want to purchase something, right? So you collect, data, uh, uh, you know, gigabytes of data so that you can hopefully know when this person's going to need uh, a new fridge so that you can 
tell them which fridge to go buy. That's a lot of data, which is a lot of it is noise for a little bit of signal that you may pay off with. The, the consequence of that is that not all data is also meaningful. The other one that you could do is, um, hey, do you need a fridge? And if the person says yes or no, instantaneously, all that other stuff that you are collecting so that you can sort of beat around the bush is completely null and void now, right? So the vast majority of the stuff that's collected is actually just noise. And, 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 and what I think that the tech companies are starting to come around on, which is what human beings and our evolutionary ancestors and our entire biological system has come around to, is the vast majority of information is noise. The signal is very limited. And even when it's limited, it's limited within a, a, a useful, within a context, right? So inferring uh, meaning and semantics is still context related. So I think this is why I'm so skeptical of the idea of this artificial intelligence and AGI and all the other stuff that people are, you know, sort of going on and on about. I, I, I look at all that and I say, yeah, yes, in a way to me, that what artificial intelligence and machine learning and all these stuff are, are really representing is, it's just a newer, it's just sort of like the discovery of a database, right? Now we have a yeah. place to store data and we could recall that data for later, you know, uh, processes. Yes, it does open a whole new set of opportunities for you, but to jump from a database is going to lead to this, uh, you know, living sentient being with feelings that we're going to, and automatically the, the flaws you could see in the argument is that we're basically projecting human values onto an artificial thing and assuming that it's going to have any sort of semblance of, of, of priorities that we do, right? And, and we know that that's not necessarily possible simply because the programming languages are precise and, and, and specific and human language is malleable and, and, and context dependent. And since we can't infer meaning uh, from book of flight on, uh, you know, back into the code, uh, it's very unwise, so to speak, to, to assume that we're going to make that jump. It's just going to be a leap. It's, it's, it's this assumption that, you know, we write uh, this sort of proof for mathematical framework. And in the middle, we just write the source section to do later and we'll just kind of figure it out. But meanwhile, we're going to jump to the conclusion and we're going to build an entire narrative around that conclusion. Oh, my company does uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence and we'll do this. Or, oh, well, artificial intelligence is going to be a threat to all of humanity. We need to worry about that. And I'm like, look, the big, the, you got a burger, you got the buns, but you're missing the meat. The meat is, is the most crucial part of this burger. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I totally agree with you that like none of the frameworks that are available today, they will lead us to artificial intelligence. Like, like I, I would go to the point that it's like, it's, it's impossible. Like we need, some, we need something completely different. Uh, I give you another example on this, like, because you, you made the example that like computers, they need to see 1000 dogs in order to know what a dog is. Instead humans, you point once to a dog and they know that this is a dog. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the reasons why this, there are, in my opinion, there are two, two reasons for that. Like, uh, one reason is that there is this common misconception that we humans, we use one neuron to represent one concept, mm. which is completely false. We, every concept in the human mind is represented by a set of neurons, by a pattern of neurons. And there are some researchers that said, oh, we found out that there is a particular neuron that activates when, uh, when you see a specific person, for example. But right. this doesn't mean that this neuron represents this person. What means is that this neuron, when it's active, it helps discriminating that you're talking about that person. 
but that neuron by itself does not represent the person. So why is it important that we use uh, groups of neurons to represent concepts? It's important because there is uh, because there is not a single way in our mind. Uh, there, there is nothing as a, as a as a single concept. What happens is that the moment we try to pronounce a concept, the moment we try to think about a concept, we will see this thing with a with a representation. But right. that doesn't mean. But that doesn't mean that the representation only means that. Uh, so uh, I mean, I, I make you again the example. I point. You've never seen a dog. I point to you and I tell you this is a dog. Right. There is a certain kind of representation that forms into your mind. There are actually multiple representations. Then the day after you see another dog. That representation in your mind fires, then those neurons in your mind, they fire up, they fire sufficiently so that you think that is a dog. But now your new representation of a dog will, will, will be changed. Right. If you hear, so yeah, if you, if now you will, you think about a dog that barks. Or if you think about, I need to feed the dog, it's possible that the word dog is represented completely differently in your mind, maybe, maybe even in different areas. Mm -hmm. uh, this, is, this, this is important because the thing is that, so the thing that I want to propose now, now that I'm not sure, but I think it's like what happens, is that it's not true that the human, once he sees a dog, he learns the dog at least not in the meaning that we are interpreting it. What happens is that when the human sees a dog, he starts forming a pattern and then he thinks that he knows that this is a dog and he thinks it enough that he thinks that he formed the representation of the dog, which might not necessarily be true. There is a subtle difference, but I think that this difference is very uh, is very important. Now it's quite hard to explain like um, in words, but I make this very specific example in, uh, I make the example of a teacup in, uh, or how we represent a teacup in my website. And then there is right. a second difference, which is very, very different way between how brains and computers work. So in the human brain, uh, the cortex is organized into layers. There are six layers and each and each processing unit of the human brain is a column that goes across those six layers. Okay. And what happens is that one of those layers always provides information towards the area of our brain which processes actions. So the thing is that every single point of, of our brain, in, in every single point of our brain, the process is something off. I try to, to think, to understand what is it that I'm perceiving, and I propose an action based on that. Mm. Well, and this, so action is basically a distributed um, concept in our brain. Okay. There is not an area of our brain that makes, that starts the actions. 
there is an area of our brain which decides which action to, which action to make, given options. And there is an area of our brain which once our brain decides that it's going to do this action, it decides how, from a motor point of view, we will actually execute the action. But there is no single part of the brain where actions start from. It's a, it's a distributed concept. And that instead, makes sense. Yeah, and instead in software, it's not like this. Usually there is a module that got, that makes perception, and then there is another module that, based on the output of the perception module, takes some action. And this, I think, this I think is another dif difference that is, requires a completely fundament fundamentally different approach on uh, about machine learning. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know, see that what's interesting about that is we know that what you just stated, at some level, has to be true, and I mean that in the following sense. So if there was one, and I think it kind of goes back to the idea of how information travels through the internet, right? It's a packet system and there's various routes it can get from point A to point B. So if you think about a human being that walks, right? So you have a particular motor pattern in your brain that gets activated, and that's actually the precise uh, language they use in, in the textbooks when they're describing this, is that there's a motor pattern for walking. That's why when you first start to dance, you're really bad at it, and then you get good at it because you practice the same particular motion over and over and over, and eventually that sort of becomes uh, you know, refined in your brain and you can actually perform that particular dance in, in a much more fluid manner, which looks nicer and pleasing to the eye. But what's fascinating is when you twist your ankle, right? So you fall and you twist your ankle and now you have to, sh you just have to walk because if you're being chased by a, a lion or a tiger or a bear or whatever, you still need to, to be able to get away because if that one pattern stopped you from being able to move, you'd be, you wouldn't survive, right? So there, yeah. there's an adjustment made in the brain to compensate for that particular um, uh, immobilization to say, okay, your ankle is twisted and I can't usually use the same cycle to move, so I'll just adjust it. So yes, you will be slower. Yes, you'll be in a little bit of pain, but you can still move. And I think that, 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 that whole idea of patterns as opposed to specific uh, functional units is very, um, it has to be true. Otherwise, uh, the whole system around you would break. Every time you hurt yourself in any way, shape, or form, and your brain just sort of... And, and we, we notice from, from people who suffer you know, uh, strokes, their brain yeah. sort of rewires it, right? It, it has to rewire itself. Otherwise, it can't stay... Uh, um, it'll literally be fragile, right? Exactly. And, exactly. And, and computer programs... And what's interesting about that is uh, I had some experience earlier in my, um, uh, my career working with robotics. And what's fascinating is the programs you write to uh, work with robots are sequential and they're a sort of uh, software doesn't necessarily take into consideration the real world. And I mean that in the following sense. So I will write a piece of code that says, okay, I want this robot arm to move from this spot, go up to, to you know, uh, for, for, you know, 10, 10 seconds and then go right and then go down and, and clamp the, the, the particular uh, thingamabob that's sitting on the conveyor belt pick it up and bring it back. In software, it's always perfect, right? Because the code is, you're just reading a set of instructions that is perfect. But in the real world, that robotic arm, that, that, that motor that's been attached to that arm has different uh, um, uh, precision and repeatability uh, factors built into it. And you know, if that robot arm is hot, the amount it moves up might overshoot what you thought you were looking at. And yeah. when it comes back down, it will overshoot what you think it's going to pick up the, the device. So that's why these things 
in the analog world, when the robot starts to interface with software, um, the precision that we're used to assuming when we're programming and the reality and the messiness that comes with it from the other side of it, they clash. And that's where robotics gets really interesting and difficult because the code should say one thing, but the physical world, the, the overshooting, the limitations, the timing, you know, the, the, the fluctuations of uh, voltage given to that particular motor, over time deteriorates. Meanwhile, the code sort of stays pristine, right? And so this is why it's so interesting to watch those Boston Dynamics robots that are leaping and jumping and picking up stuff and doing all sorts of fascinating things. Because they they went from very robotic movements to now much more fluid. If you if you sort of pay attention to you know go to YouTube and just Google Boston Dynamics, and you see their first you know robots when they're first building them and how sort of stiff their movements were, to now what we're seeing, which is a little bit more fluid, right? Yeah. And I think what what's what's really happened there is they've gone from a procedural approach to making the robot move to a more fluid approach, which is pattern based. Right, and I, and I think the machine learning is, is that's an example where I think a lot of machine learning has helped them achieve that quality of movement because the machine learning allows them to say, okay, here's a range of movements, detect the pattern, and then make adjustments accordingly on the fly. And I think we're starting to see that there's an example where it actually does make sense, where a company like Boston Dynamics or a company similar to in that vein. Uh, starts to push the idea of uh, machine learning that you can say, hey, that makes sense. That there, there's an actual applicable case to that. Yeah. Yeah, I have, I have no idea exactly how how the machines of Boston Dynamic are made, like from a software point of view. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you know, like, are, like, are they, like, hard-coded? Are they, like, do you know what's the software? Like, how oh. they yeah, so I don't know the specifics of how they're built. All I know is when I work with robots and how we program them, you it's sort of like it's just procedural. It's like okay, we need to just take you know there's infinite rate degrees of motion one out. We're just gonna take one simple pattern and we're just gonna program that into it. And so even that in itself is not easy to do. But if you wanted to say okay, not only does this robot have to move in a particular way, but it has to react to the ground and all the stuff that it finds around the way. You can't program that. I know that for a fact in the sense that if you try to program something that anticipates, you know, like that, that robot, there's examples of the robot running up a hill and down a hill and jumping up on top of a, you know, a box and doing all sorts of fancy things. There's no way to program stuff like that. There's, there's just too many calculations. To no, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, by hardcoded, I mean like, like you, you make the robot like jump one million times. Yeah, 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 yeah. I see what you mean. Uh, I, I can't speak to what they what they do. Obviously, it's, like, uh, it's like, like well, like you know how they do currently now in manufacturing plants. What happens is that there is a human that moves the robotic arm, mm -hmm. and then somehow the robotic arms learns from how the human was moving it, and I mean physically moving it, like grasps the, the human grasps the arm of the robot and makes him do what he needs to do, and then the machine learns. That's what. Right. Uh, okay, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. Yeah, but no. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're coming up on about uh, roughly two hours of time. Uh, am I? Do you have some more stuff you want to discuss around here? I don't want to take up too much of your time, uh, but okay. we've gone through most of the stuff. If, if there's anything else you really want to, you know, start to getting into, I'm happy to, to have those discussions with you. 
Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to keep uh, to keep going. Uh, there was okay. one one more argument that we didn't really talk about, which was uh, uh, fractalism, like from uh, like from national point, like from policy point of view, national, like how it impacts countries, cities, and so on. Okay, let's get into that. Yeah. Uh, so one. Th- one thing that like um i think it's quite important so fact i think that fractalism works for like three reasons okay so the first the first one is that fractalism makes divides the the wall into parts and so it allows each part to use its local knowledge so it means that rather than doing the thing with the worst efficiency across the board, the maximum of the costs, and so on, it allows each part to use its own policy and and procedures and whatever is best for the situation. Right. The second the second reason is because it um, divides responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the idea is that like what we see with political systems is that. Uh, when we get up outside of the social distance, we need ownership. So that's that's the idea why, for example, like socialism works at very small scales, right? And and historically fails at larger scales. It's because like if I'm like usually family families they tend to be like communist in their inside, mm-hmm. and it works because there is some kind of social policing inside, like, uh, I mean, I slap you if you don't clean your room. Right. But then it gets much worse at larger levels when Mm -hmm. you cannot, like, have this kind of social policing. What do you think that is? So I think that, yeah, I think that one reason is basically because, like, uh, this social policing is one incentive Mm-hmm. is one negative incentive towards doing some things and on and on the other side you also want um, to be able to share uh, the results of your work only with yourself or the people that you consider in group and generally right. humans they tend to share the results of their work proportionally with people proportionally to how much they consider their in-group. So then, so kind of like people tend to share more with their, uh, with their spouse than with their, um, than with their cousin, than with their neighbors, than with their uh, citizens. But if someone is a citizen of the same, I don't know, like, sports team you're more likely to share with him because he's closer to your in-group in a way right right and so the thing is that for example like um i don't want to get into politics but i think that the angle in which you can analyze like things like communism and capitalism and so on is on um private ownership is is on whether like 
a political, I think that a good predictor of whether a political system works is if it managed to fractalize ownership. Mm -hmm. Meaning that for, for me, like one, if I had to choose one main reason why communism historically failed is because it has a kind of monolithic kind of ownership. Right. If I had to choose one reason why capitalism works, at least in some ways, is because it fractalizes ownership to the point that you get incentives that are aligned with your community. Right. Like one, one, one big misconception is that like, if there is no boundaries, then incentives are shared, which is false. Actually, what you, real, what you see historically is that the more fractal the boundaries, the more people are acting towards the group. Right, 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 right. See, or on, on these particular fronts, um, you know, I'll share some thoughts with you as to you know see how we can meld these ideas. Is that the the idea of of factualism in my mind, the way it sort of works is is the reason I think what what what, what creates problems for these systems is, is free riders, right? And or as Nassim calls them, you know, um, uh, rent seekers. So in your household, as you, like you said, you know, you divide up the chores, right? Like you do the dishes, I'll do the, the, the garbage, we'll do the cleaning and all that stuff. So everybody sort of has to come along for the ride. And, you know, if it's a baby, you obviously accommodate. And as they get older, you start to say, hey, you know, I got to pull my weight, plus you got to pull yours. But yeah. externally, you don't know what the person is actually doing, right? But to a certain extent, you kind of do. Like if it's your neighbor and you share a lawn together and you mow the lawn one week, and they don't, they don't, they don't mow it the next week. You kind of notice that, and you go, okay, um, you know, maybe it was just they're sick or whatever. And then <clears throat> you do it again, and you notice that they never do it for you. And eventually, what ends up happening, and I get to witness this all the time, is that winter time comes, and you shovel just your own driveway, whereas you used to shovel yours plus theirs to help because sometimes they'll the reciprocity of the relationship is 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 is, is sort of constructed in the, along the lines of I do for you as long as you do for me. We both deposit into the account of trust. Whereas if I do for you and you don't do anything for me, you're constantly withdrawing from me and I'm not getting any benefit from it. I'm just going to cut you off, right? And so yeah. where, where, this, where the system sort of, uh, where the, the private ownership and the private uh, and the monolithic ownership, I think the opposite is uh, uh, more true in my sense of it. And I mean that in the following way. So people always vote for somebody who's going to do stuff for them. Oh, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to give you free healthcare. I'm going to give you free glasses, whatever the case may be. What we really need and what really always works is that a system that, of governance that actually uh, encapsulates failure. So the, the, we don't want the stock market to make everybody rich. What you really want is you want a stock market where somebody's risks are, 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 are contained so it doesn't explode into everybody else. So you, that's why, that's why what, what ends up happening, if you watch the cycles, everybody likes capitalism until there's a financial market pro problem, right? 2001, 2008, et cetera. And why is that? Well, that's because what happens is they, the rent seekers uh, employed in these particular industries tend to accumulate all the benefits for themselves. They take all the unwanted risks that nobody really asked them to take. The assumption from the public is that, oh, these guys are smart. They, you know, they have MBAs and they have PhDs and they went to Harvard and they went to Yale and all this other superfluous arguments. And yet a financial collapse is imminent and everybody has to say, oh, we must bail them out. And then the, 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 the blame of all that is falling upon capitalism and says, oh, look, capitalism sets up an, uh, an incentive structure that allows this to happen. And so now X, Y, and Z. 
But what, what should really happen there is you should say, okay, if you want the system to be sustainable, the people who take these kinds of risks have to be held accountable, as Nassim says uh, when he talks about skin in the game, is that if you're a bad driver, the system will take care of itself because you'll probably kill yourself off and you won't be on the road anymore, right? If you're always driving 150 miles an hour, eventually uh, that whole approach is not Lindy, i.e. you're going to make a mistake and at that speed, your mistake will kill you and we don't have to worry about you anymore. Whereas if you're this monolithic bank and you're borrowing all this money and you're leveraging yourself to the hilt, as you know, our friend Paul was explaining to us, your mistakes, because we're not letting you own those mistakes, because your mistakes, as soon as you make a mistake with leveraged money, you've contaminated everybody around you. So if we limit it to say, okay, you want to make a risky bet, go to the casino, borrow all the money you can against your assets, and that's cool. What we don't want is go into the casino and borrow against the town's assets and make and take the take the gambles bet as you can because in that particular instance, I think what ends up happening is the incentives get inverted, and the person realizes that the the amount of debt or the leverage I have in here that even if it goes south, it won't all fall on me because it's too much for one person. So everybody will chip in and bail me out. Exactly. I think that's yeah. So I think that the the fractal approach to that is to is is to localize risk. It's always about you know let's manage the downside risk and say okay for every person who participates in any system. What has to happen is the risk of a mistake has to fall squarely back on their shoulders to the point where obviously we don't want them to die and get crushed by it because, you know, we're, we're in, the, in the business of trying to help them up and, and you know, become uh, thriving individuals of the society. But we definitely don't want their risk to spill over to the rest of us. And I think what happens in, in, in monolithic systems that are uh, communistic in nature, one of the things you'll always notice is it has a very peculiar um, feature that's uh, sort of what you notice in companies. It's, it's bureaucratic. And what that means in bureaucracy is nobody's to blame. Everybody says, oh, that's not my area. I, don't, I didn't make that decision. We made that decision as a group in a room, right? And there's no one single person who's going to take responsibility for that decision. Therefore, you're willing to take more risk, the decisions that are riskier. Exactly. And exactly. And this, is, this, is, this is also like why I think like, uh, that like, it's possible to say that uh, the failures of capitalism where when we failed to apply capitalism in the way that like the, the central tenet of capitalism is like the private property. And problems happen when we forget to apply this private property, private ownership, in also the private ownership of risks. So for example, the idea is that like banks, they would work if they didn't share risks inside themselves. Yes. And banks like Problems happens when you make bailouts, but bailouts means that suddenly you take private property and you make it public. Yes, but only on the one side of it, not on the other side of it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, like, so like you can say that like all, like if, like all, more, I would go as far as saying as all institutional failures are, are, happen when fractalism is broken up. Yeah, I agree. It's it's an accumulation of power, which gives you leverage, but also with leverage comes the responsibility that if you fall, you're going to hurt more things, right? Yeah, because it, yeah, it kinda... yeah. The, talking to just just touching the point of leverage, there is this false belief that uh, scale and fractalism are they cannot go together, but actually fractalism is is how you manage scale. Agrees. It's totally possible to have a fractal organization and reap the benefits of scale. 
Yes. So it, this is interesting in the following sense. And I, and I, and I remember um, I was reading the history of, uh, of the Soviet Union and how it came into to power. One of the things that was really fascinating was that there were decisions being made in Moscow that affected 16 time zones, right? Like that's how big Russia is. If you travel from one end to the other, how long it takes you to get there. And this disconnect between the decision and the... So first of all, you make a decision. So you have to tell a guy who tells a guy who tells a guy. By the time it gets implemented, you probably already lost the transmission of information because of broken telephone, right? That's problem A. Problem B is that whatever consequence of that actually happens, it goes back to our original conversation about the input versus the output and the delay between them. So the first and second order effects of this system are such that the decision that seemed good in Moscow are not necessarily going to be good when it's implemented on the other side of the country. And so whatever feedback loop that's supposed to inform that, that, that system overall is not cohesive anymore, right? Whereas the fractal approach would have been, uh, and, I, and I've thought about this long and hard, it's like, well, how do you achieve success from a unified standpoint where you're, your success is naturally going to make you bigger? But how do you maintain that level of success without creating a monoculture where you're disrupting, you're, you're disconnecting yourself from reality? And I think the way to do that is through a set of beliefs and a vision, right? So the vision has to be that we're trying to do X for humanity or for our people or for you know the world, whatever the case is. The approach is that each person at the local level says, I buy into this vision and I buy into these ideas, but I'm going to implement my solution that's going to be informed by the dynamic environment around me so that the decision I make is in service of that vision, yet it is not dictated by the person who originally came up with the idea. Yeah. See what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think that that that's the only way I could see where this actually has some leg room. Because if you say, you know, uh, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, uh, that's an axiomatic statement. That's actually one of the things George Orwell said was that when he was writing 1984, that when he read the, the United States Constitution, he said that first sentence is not open to misinterpretation. Like we hold these evident, we hold these truths to be self-evident, is axiomatic in the sense that. You read that, you go, okay, I get it instantly. There's no need for me to go in and fudge that and misinterpret that. And I think that's what gives the U.S. Constitution that power because it's a set of beliefs that everybody can sort of interpret in their own way. And each location pursues those same ideas, but it's in context of the local environment, which is why I think, and I could be wrong, and I'm open to you know correction on that, is I think the reason the United States is the most powerful country uh, that's ever existed is because the unifying vision and belief of the people that are part of it uh, are one, but the implementation of it are many. Whereas everywhere else, it sort of goes the opposite way, which is like we have many ideas, but we have one implementation, right? And that implementation never works if you don't have that fractal uh, element uh, embedded into the system. Yeah, I'm not, I don't know too, ma too much the United States. I've been there like only two weeks in my life. But I wonder if, is there really a unique, like, yeah, like a unified con, uh, vision that everyone um, shares? It, it tends to be. And I mean, and we're Canadian, so we, we get a vision. I mean, we get, a, we get an insight into how our, our, our neighbors to the South operate. But if you really look at how they all uh, pursue a set of ideas, right? It's like everybody... Uh, is, is, you know, the, the, the right to pursue happiness in your own particular way. That, that's essentially what they do. It's just where you see the conflict is how people who believe the interpretation to be, it's, it's kind of like it goes back to our example of the gun situation, right? Two 
two different people can take the same particular product and have two different narratives attached to it. But both can coexist. And it can only coexist in an, in a, in an environment where fractalism allows it to coexist. Whereas okay. in a country that's, that's more authoritarian in nature, they would just simply outright ban all firearms. And no matter what your, your position to that may be, it's just done. And then that creates an underbelly of resentment and, 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 and disconnect. Because it's like, well, if I live in a country where I feel that my views are not the majority view and therefore my views don't count, you, you sort of lose the alignment of the individual's potential against the collective's potential, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I understand now what you mean. Also, because like it's it's a value that it's like uh, shared by everyone. Yeah, and I think that's where nationalism gets a bad rap. And and I think the the bad rap it gets is that nationalism means uh, it's it's perfectly tied to ethnicity or, or 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 skin color or whatnot. But that's not what it actually really means. What it means is there's a set of values that we all agree upon, right? It's it's, it's kind of like if you think about it. Everybody gets on the road, right? You have people who vote Democrat and people who vote Republican and people who are communists and people who are anarchists. Yet, when we get on the road, we all follow the same set of rules. Why is that? Well, because it's in all our shared interests that if we all drive on the same side and we don't slam into each other, we all have an opportunity of surviving, right? And potentially even thriving. So even though there are areas of mass disagreement, there are areas of joint agreement that allows us to sort of cohesively progress from point A to point B. And I think what the United States Constitution has allowed them to do, which a lot of other countries don't seem to quite grasp, is that it's not the top-down solution to the problem of, of dictating how things should be done, which is, I think, where the European Union is having all of its problems is because they're telling everybody how to do everything, right? And that's where people start to rebel because people get more upset if you tell them what TV shows they can watch and what books they can read than they really get upset about what taxes that have to be passed, right? Because one is a very direct, connective uh, uh, matter to them to say, hey, you're not allowed to read this book or this guy is not allowed to be on Twitter because we don't want you to hear from that. That upsets people viscerally because it's like I can immediately interact with that book. I can immediately interact with that person. And now you're telling me that I as an adult don't have the right to exercise my um, uh, autonomy to be able to, you know, if this guy has 100 bad ideas, it's entirely my choice if I want to interact with them or not. Whereas the other side of the equation is, boom, it's cut off. That's how it's going to be. You have no say in the matter. And so that loses the potential of human ingenuity to say, hey, even though I disagree with this, the nationalist idea is that we all agree to a certain set of rules. We have a set of beliefs about how we want to pursue life and you know, what we want for our kids and what we want for. And people say, oh, everywhere you go in the world, everybody wants the same things. That's not true. That's very not true, because we know that's not true. If, if you just simply measure the fact of how people treat their children and they're elderly in one culture versus how they treat them in another culture. There are vast differences with that. And, and this, 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 this idea that's been sold uh, is that everybody wants the same thing. It's not true. It's definitely not true. And people who, the, the sooner people come to realize that, the sooner they'll be able to wrap their head around the, the various manifestations of human culture in different parts of the world. Yeah, yeah I see what you mean. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, my take on fractalism and uh, localism in that, in that particular sense, in that vein. Uh, what else did you? No, no, because I was I was thinking how big of a part played in this the fact that like um, that like at least from my from my understanding like um, like. The fact that um, that America is is a federal state, and it's yeah, mostly, it's mostly a, a collective. In actuality, the state 
actually exerts more power than the federal government does because if, if people have this assumption that you know the president can do whatever he wants it's not true you know like a lot of stuff is, you know, there's a lot of power residing within the local level of their government and it's actually the inverse of because every, everybody has this assumption that oh whoever's in charge of the country could do whatever they want and everybody must do what they think no it's, it's actually the exact opposite only in countries that are authoritarian is that belief held to be more true. But even in those particular instances, the reason that they don't succeed is because you may tell, like, let's say I'm, I'm, I'm in charge of, of, of a particularly uh, despotic country. And I say, okay, I'm, I'm in Pyongyang and I'm going to dictate what has to be done in one of the provinces. And the person in that, in that province who doesn't actually believe what I believe, but they're forced because of the circumstances of their situation to follow along, they may not necessarily put 100% effort into it just because they don't believe in the idea. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, Whereas, exactly. exactly. Yeah, uh -huh. so that, that disconnect between what you're selling me and I, I have to do what you're saying, but I don't believe in what you're saying, so my effort is not going to match the enthusiasm you expect me to put into it, is where the expectation of the dear leader versus the reality of what they try to accomplish. Because I'm sure when, when they sit at the table and they dictate terms, oh, we're going to make our country prosperous and happy and rich and all this stuff. Everybody sort of understands what they mean by that, but the implementation of it is so misaligned with the individual person's understanding of how those things should be done that the reality of their efforts never really matches the theory of their, of their uh, you know, pontifications of their leader. So I've, I've noticed that, that in other parts of the world where, where these ideas are more freely discussed and, and there's debate, and there's lively, and people mistake debate for for discord, and that's not true. People, you know, people can have disagreements and still actually progress because what ends up happening is if you're in a culture where you allow these debates to take place, the ideas actually end up getting better because every idea that collides with another person's perspective leaves room open for that idea to get better. So, what's it like in Italy? What's the political climate like in in, in Italy? I think it's quite chaotic. Uh... Yeah. Yeah, um, just to give you an just to give you an idea, uh, we had the last elections. Then somehow two parties won. They couldn't agree on. Uh, they at the beginning they couldn't agree on which one of the leaders of the two parties should become the prime minister. So they decided to get a third party, which is kind of independent. To, to become the prime minister. And then they discovered that this person, if I understood correctly, uh, he faked uh, some data in his curriculum vitae. So he was supposed not to become the prime minister, but then he became the prime minister anyway. And I, I don't really follow too much uh, Italian politics, but as far as I know, it's, it's quite chaotic. Mm. Uh, yeah, we, if I if I had like to point out and one problem is that Italy is too monolithic mm. in this way. Like there are decisions that are taken too far off, standards that are taken too far off, and one 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 additional problem of like uh, creating standards that apply everywhere, like rules that apply everywhere is that the person that creates a standard also becomes its gatekeeper. And so it becomes, it gets power because it decides where to put the standards and where to, um, 
and who stays on the good part of the standard and who stays on the bad part of the standard. Mm. One additional advantage of fractalism or localism or federalism is that there are more standards, so more gatekeepers, each one of them which has a much, much lower share. Right. And uh, and you have different different advantages on that. So one one so one advantage is that only one tiny part of the population tends to be uh, more like now I'm completely exaggerating on the meaning of the term, but like psychotic or corrupt. Mm. Uh, like looking very much at their own advantage. And so the more gatekeepers you have, the more higher the chance that people will, will have more interest of other people at heart, they reach the position. Right. Uh, another advantage is that each of those gatekeepers has lower position. So let's say that um, I'm a lobbyist. Instead of lobbying one person, I need to lobby 20 people. Right. Like, I think that Taleb talks about this in Skin in the Game. But one advantage of this is that, like, so I have less money to give to each of those 20 people. Mm -hmm. So I'm less likely to get to his threshold of corruptibility. Right. Because there might be past people that, like, if they get offered, like, I don't know, 10,000 euros, they will say like, uh, no, no, I'm just following my principles and do it my way. But if they get offered 1 million, they might actually decide to um, follow the advice of that person, let's say. Right. The more you fractalize, the lower the the central top-down incentives. So the more likely you are that people are actually following their own internal compass. Right, 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 right. So, yeah. Yeah, I think I think in, in in that in that sense of it, what we can uh, really tie into that with the first and second order effects of it are it's how you treat the law, right? So you want the law to be a shield, you don't want the law to be a, a sword. And what I mean by that is, in a yeah. fractal localist system, every single uh, idea that's proposed is designed as a shield, like to to protect the people around that particular area from whatever harm may come their way. Whereas if you create a monolithic system, it turns into a sword, right? It's like, do it this way. That's the only way to do it. And if you don't do it this way, we're going to take you out of power or worse yet, if it's a, you know, a, a terribly uh, tyrannical nature, they may just say, if you don't do it this way, we'll kill you and everybody you know, right? Where, so you want, you always want, and that's why I try to look at the implementation of, of, of politics as a, as a understanding of, uh, is this a shield or is this a sword, right? Can you tell people to do A, or do you tell people do B, or else you're gonna die, right? And so, so I think the the idea of, of sharing ideas and just having discussions is good, so that we can get together all the leaders of a particular provinces, and everybody says, okay, we solved healthcare in our sector this way, we had this kind of homeless problem, and we helped solve it this way, and we had transportation issues, and we solved it this way, and then everybody goes back and says, okay, I learned from everybody, and I'm gonna try my way to meet my context, versus. Everybody shows up and one person says, this is how you're going to solve healthcare. This is how you're going to solve transportation. This is how you're going to solve you know, education. Now go back and just do it. And I think that's where the, the failure comes in, which is that instead of sharing a set of uh, inputs into the equation, let's say these are just one factor that you can take into how you want to proceed. It's, this is the only factor that you can take in and how you proceed. And that's where I think the consequences start to become much more amplified if you allow multi-factor equations for people's decision-making processes as opposed to 
this is the right answer. Go and do it this way. Correct. And then, and then there is another another thing. Like I, I'm not fully convinced of, of what I'm about to say. Like I didn't really think about it, but I think there is a kind of pattern that um, the more fractal something is, the more ri- the rights that the people inside have are actual freedom rights. Yeah. And the more monolithic it is, the more the rights they either are obligations mm-hmm. to do or obligation to receive. I see what you mean. In a way, like, and and yeah, and then like, I'm not saying that everything is good on one side and everything is bad on the other side, but I think it's a it's a pattern that I observed. Yeah. No, I agree with that. It's 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 a matter of giving people, and I think it it's it's human nature to be sort of paternalistic, right? Is that you want to help people avoid making mistakes that you made? That's that's okay. That's a good instinct to have. It's like, hey, you know, just letting you know that if you go to the gym and you lift really heavy weights, you can hurt yourself. I know because I've done it. That's cool. But it's there's that's one thing. It's another thing to prevent any heavy weights from ever being in the gym, so nobody can hurt themselves, right? You. You kind of want to leave the door open for people to explore on their own because what may be a heavyweight in my estimation may may well just be like a regular everyday medium sized weight for the other person, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. yeah it people... turns into that whole better Pocustus, right? You you don't want one size solution and fit reality into it. You just want to let reality flow, and you just want to kind of work with it and not fight reality. I think that's the the biggest takeaway from antifragility and and and, and the Enchero volume is that. The more you fight reality, the harsher the lessons you're going to have to learn. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and then the governments they they very often tend to tend to have this black and white um, distinction, like either I don't do anything mm-hmm. or I do everything. Whereas like right. there, there there is some spectrum between like capping the negative consequences mm-hmm. of the mistakes of my people and preventing my people from doing those mistakes. Exactly. Like one thing is saying like, if you're gonna go bankrupt, I will still provide this minimum level of service. And one thing is to say like, you get the same level of service no matter what. Yeah. Well, like, yeah, in, in a way when I, when I, when I hear you, it's kind of like if you're um, raising children, it's like you want them to be obedient enough that they don't hurt themselves, but you want them to be rebellious enough to discover things on their own, right? So you don't want completely obedient children because then they won't be able to survive when a, a context that's different from your home environment is confronting them because then they can't really function very well. But you don't want them to be so rebellious that they can't take any advice whatsoever because their natural default is to disagree with everything, right? Exactly. exactly. So it's sort of what you're discussing there. Yeah, exactly. And similarly, you want to like uh, uh, prevent them from doing stuff that might kill them, but you don't want to prevent them from stuff that might like get them to twist their ankle. Yeah, yeah, a little, a little twisted ankle, a little you know, scrape on the knee is just fine, as opposed to put on six helmets, five knee pads, and you know they're wearing like a goggles. They they really can't see the reality of the activity they're participating in because you're yeah. shielding them from all the downside of it, which. Not all downside, as you stated, uh, is bad, right? I think, I think what, what ends up happening is when people start to look at the world black and white, 
And that's where the mistake starts to really seep in because as much as you want it to be black and white, the benefits come from the gray, right? It's that gray area that allows you to explore and expand your, your as you said, your, your thought patterns, right? Because you can say, hey, you know what? I can ride a bike and I'm good if I fall at, at, uh, at this speed. So I'll know better than to go at really high speed down a hill when I've never really done it before because I know what it's like to have fallen at a very slow speed I'm not going to be, you know, ready to go and jump on top of the highest mountain to just, you know, uh, ride my bike all the way down. Although some people do that, right? But yeah, exactly. you need that. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and if you go back to the concept of, of anti-fragility, like the thing we said at the beginning, like anti-fragility is the gray area between yes. the white of nothing happens and the black of uh, game over. Yeah, no, it's it, it's definitely true, and, and and we try to encourage that uh, on risky conversations with uh, all of our uh, listeners and our guests. That you know what, the best parts of life are always in the gray area. I've I've found that it's it's rarely interesting to be in the black or in the white. It's much more interesting to be right, sort of in the middle of all that, where you're like, okay, I see the gun argument from the parent who's lost a child and the parent who said my house was defended by the gun. That's where the interesting conversations happen. That's where the good ideas come out of. Versus yeah. just locking yourself down into one boat and saying, this is the only way out through this, which in some contexts, a boat is good until you're no longer on the lake and you have to climb the mountain, right? Then you have to let the boat go and, and, and put on your hiking shoes. Yeah, exactly. All right. So uh, any other topics you, you that, that are burning up in your mind that you want to discuss? Mm, not too much. Okay. Uh, not yeah, uh, I, I think we, we share a common uh, uh, appreciation for the idea of anti-fragility. And uh, for our listeners who keep hearing this word and they don't really necessarily understand what it means, it's, it's as follows, right? So there are some things that are robust. And, and uh, like the best example of something that's robust that I can give you is like an anvil, right? It's just there. It's hard. You hit it. Nothing really happens. It has a breaking point, but it's really, really, you know, it's, I think it's uh, an anvil is like made out of iron. And again, there's some blacksmiths that are listening. They're going to say, no, it's made out of X, Y, or Z. For the sake of this argument, let's assume it's made out of iron. And even stars that explode, I think iron is at the limit at which anything really happens. So it's robust. On the other side of it, you have things that are fragile, like a, a glass, a, a, a cup of tea or something. You drop it, it breaks. It doesn't have tolerance for risk whatsoever. And anti-fragile, the concept that was originally coined by Nassim Taleb is something that's organic that can actually benefit from slight perturbations. What I mean by that is if you take a muscle and you apply some force to it, you are making it uncomfortable by putting some stress onto that muscle. But because it's organic, it adapts to that by actually layering in extra muscle fibers and getting stronger. So the next time you go to the gym, as, as uh, Luca said, you actually get stronger. So this idea of anti-fragility, that's one example of it, but there's multiple examples of it. Every time you face stress and you overcome that stress, the next time that same stress shows up, it doesn't even stress you out anymore. Because right? you can say, oh, I've already handled that problem. I know exactly how to deal with it. And so what we're discussing here, uh, this whole conversation about first, second, and third order effects is neatly wrapped around that idea that anti-fragile um, organic beings, such as human beings, are much more capable than people give them permission to, to, to explore. They can do a lot more things than people are, are, are allowed to do. And, and, and it always starts with yourself, right? So if you give yourself permission to make mistakes without assuming that a mistake is the worst thing in the world, you're going to discover new capabilities and new uh, abilities that may not only benefit you, but the rest of us as well. And so that's, that's the idea of anti-fragility. It's to recognize that organic systems 
adapt to the environment around them and they co-evolve and we change our environment, our environment changes us and, and sometimes for the good and sometimes for the worse. And, and we try to navigate that as best we can so that we can optimize the solutions for you. And Nassim's example was that, uh, you know, if you're a candle and a bit of wind comes, it'll, you know, snuff out the flame. Whereas if you got a nice pile of wood and a, and a, and a, and a, a breeze of wind comes, the fire gets hotter. Which is kind of what you want. It's like the, the and, and the wind in this particular example is uncertainty and unknown and things that you haven't experienced before. Which is that when that interacts with you, do not be the candle, be the the, the pile of uh, wood that's going to just become much brighter because you know how to uh, interact with that wind as opposed to being snuffed out by it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, Lucas. So, uh, to to summarize your 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 viewpoints on on these particular issues, that that we want to be very cognizant of the um, the gap between our our cortex and our um, neurons, so that we know a decision that's going to be made that has to have a long term benefit for us, so that we're making better decisions every single day. Yeah, at intuitive level. Yeah. Yeah, and those ideas have to be. And those ideas can be mapped across multiple domains, and they can be mapped across, you know, machine learning uh, applications. They can be mapped across going to the gym, eating healthy, watching your finances, uh, and anything of that sort. Uh, Ember, did you want to jump in and 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 have any final thoughts on these issues? Uh, just now, when you were talking, when you were recap um, summarizing the concepts about antifragility, I just like you just came into my mind that basically the difference between the fragilism and the antifragile is that the antifragile is able to break locally. Yes. And the fragile is what is unable to break locally. Yep, that's exactly it. You're stuck in a local maxima and you can't break out of that. Yeah, exactly. Then there, then there is an additional requirement for antifragility, which is that antifragility has to have some mechanism that, that gives some kind of reproduction but but I think that the main fact is that it breaks locally. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a fantastic uh, insight. We appreciate your time and your insights. Yeah, and we will have... Thank you. No problem. Amber, go ahead. No, no, I was just saying that it was an awesome talk. It was uh, lovely to listen to Luca. Thank you. No problem. And for our listeners, we will post uh, Luca's uh, Twitter handle and his uh, uh, website on the podcast when it goes up. So if you want to find uh, more information about Luca, you can actually do that. I've been following him on Twitter for a number of years. I was uh, pleasantly surprised when we got to have this opportunity to have this conversation. So I want to thank you very much for coming on and being a guest and sharing with us your ideas. Thank you so much for inviting me. No problem. Have a great evening. I know you're. It's it's uh, pretty late in Italy. Uh, yes. And until next time. All <laughs> right. <laughs> Have a good Thank day. You. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we have. The truth is, any worthy conversation you'll ever have will inherently be a risky conversation, as long as it's open and honest, where ideas are exchanged and emotions swirl. Thank you for listening. Be anti-fragile and carry on the ancient tradition in your own unique way. By saying what only you can say and doing what only you can do. Abiding by Milton's words, this is Amr Sadat signing off. Wishing you the very best of worthy and risky conversations. <laughs>